Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. Thank you, Dana, for that austere introduction. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thanks again for your word and, uh, and for the truth and the power of it. And uh, we thank you already for what you've done in our presence this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us now, Lord, and uh, go beyond the lack of eloquence of the speaker. Uh, and Lord, by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, Lord, change our values this morning. Not just simply give us a sermon or a message or something intellectually challenging, Lord, but do something that changes us and show us a little bit more, perhaps a lot more, about how you view us and how you view this world that we live in. And so we commit this time to you now with open ears and open hearts. And, uh, and we turn to you now and we pray that you would fill us. In the name of Yeshua, amen. Uh, Thank you for your presentation this morning. For the last uh, decade, uh, I've been going to Israel every year, usually with Chosen People Ministries, with a fellow named Justin Crone, and we go in and don't just see the tour sites, uh, but we also try to go in and do some ministry work. So we try to find several ministries within the country, and we'll, we'll give them a day. Sometimes we'll give them half a day of service, depending on what it is that they have for us to do. And we don't just simply want busy work, because sometimes when mission, and I use that kind of word lightly, but sometimes when people come to help, it's like you spend more energy trying to find something for them to do so that they've had a fulfilling experience helping you, that actually they helped you less when you look at the end of the day. It's like, you know, really, if these Americans hadn't shown up and rolled up their sleeves, glad they came, glad they have hearts to serve, but sometimes it's like it was actually harder for us today when they showed up. <laughs> and that happens in mission, you know, but, but it's also important for us to go and to roll up our sleeves and ask how can we help. And it's also important for us to go back especially when we go to Israel, to go back home and to say, hey, I'm so excited because we went to help the Israelis. And sometimes that testimony of how you helped is actually more important in helping the local ministry than the actual work that you did there that day. And so I know it's an important work. One of the most difficult things to do uh, when I'm with Justin, with chosen people, is uh, is an evangelism day where we'll go uh, and we'll partner with... Uh, you know, a ministry and will literally take books of Ruth and uh, other uh, literature and go down the beach. And I just imagine how it feels, you know, when I'm down here at the beach and I want to go surfing and I finally I'm exhausted and I finally sit down and I'm thinking about firing up the Coleman grill and making some carne asada. And the last thing I want is for a Mormon to show up and, you know, and the <laughs> blue pants and the white shirt and the tie and share with me, you know, how they found a New Testament somewhere and America, I pretty much shut them down immediately. And that's exactly how I imagine the Israelis feeling on the day when we show up with backpacks. Oh, we know what's in the backpack. It's books of Ruth again. But the reality of the testimony is, is that we hear from certain Israelis that, uh, you know, that, that they've gotten phone calls, just random phone calls, their ministry, uh, from somebody who had bought a used car from a guy who, uh, who apparently had been given a book of Ruth on the beach by some missionaries and was too polite to just throw it back at them. And uh, as a matter of fact, ended up throwing it into the floorboard of their car. And I'm sure a couple of, of stoplights and all of a sudden that thing shoots underneath the seat of the car. 
Months, maybe years go by, you know. Sells the car. Some guy now removed from the experience of the, the annoying missionaries on the beach one day also stopped short at a stoplight and now the book makes its journey from the bottom of the seat out into the floorboard of the driver's side. He says, a book, maze, zesefer, right? What is this? This is a book. What kind of book? Book of Ruth, huh? Starts reading it in his day off at work, you know, or whatever. And all of a sudden, now they hear the story of the gospel and the back is a sticker inside the book. And then they go to the congregation. They hear more about who is Yeshua. Completely removed from the experience. So the whole point is, is that what's important for us is our faithfulness. For us to just be faithful to what the Lord has called us to do. And then not worry about the results in the moment. But just say, I'm being faithful. And so when you go to Israel, the first time you go, go and see and, and, you know, do the whole thing from the tour bus to the tour site to the gift shop, back to the tour bus, repeat several times a day for two weeks and then just go home. Okay. But the next time that you go, say to yourself, I want to do all the stuff we did, but there's some things I kind of like could have not done again. So let's kind of cut those out and then let's see if we can do some advance work and try to see some Israeli missions And could we help them? Can we fold something? Can we stuff something? Can we pass something? And what can we do to help you? And if it's nothing, if it's going to be too much work, whatever. But, you know, we just want to try to help you. Because believe me, they need all the help they can get. What's interesting is that the same culture that we live in here today is the same culture which is going on globally. Okay? And that is that we live in a postmodern culture. Now, for people who are believers, this term postmodern is also attached to a style of church, which is happening in the United States, that depending on where you fall in terms of the Bible, maybe you're for it or maybe you're against it. But I'm not talking about a method of doing church. I'm just talking about a culture that we live in. And who knows exactly why, and I'm not a psychologist, and I could give you several examples as to why that we live in this, cult, this culture. But let's just talk about the culture itself and not the reason why we're there. And the culture is very simple. There's a generation of people which is rising up probably between, I don't know, when do you start asking existential questions? Between maybe 10 years old and 30 years old. And they are pretty much characterized, not to overgeneralize, but they're pretty much characterized as a generation which is rejecting, more and more rejecting absolutes, rejecting institutions. And it's not unlike the generation which swept through the world, not just America and not just Southern California, but swept through the world in the 1960s and early 1970s, right? Don't trust anybody over what? Well, see, I'm in trouble because I'm 44 now. So can you trust me? I don't know. Don't trust anybody over 30. We're going to make our own way. We're going to do our own rules. We're going to do our own thing. And when that movement swept through the world and the same movement that was affecting believers and non-believers, when that movement started sweeping through the church, that mentality, that mindset started sweeping through the church, there was a bunch of kids that were kind of dropping out and trying drugs and doing all the other. I'm talking about kids that were raised in church. And then pretty soon there was sort of a hippie movement. Jesus, the long hair, the beard, it all made sense. He was a hippie. So people started to share and share the gospel from that perspective. Now, I know he's Lord, he's Savior, but, but, but the whole point is, is that he kind of had the hippie vibe. And so there's a whole hippie church when they said, hey, don't trust anybody over 30. Hey, well, you know what? Yeshua died at 33. So let's listen to what he had to say towards the back end of his life. And then that was what they called in America the Jesus movement. And a whole way of doing church exploded because of that, largely due to the fact that of the Six-Day War. 
And people started saying, hey, you know what? Israel has become a state again. And not only that, but all of the nations have come against it. And you know what? Somehow, miraculously, Israel stood. So they started preaching. People get ready. What? Jesus is coming. And in the middle of all of that movement in the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s, in the middle of all that movement, you had Calvary Chapel developed. There's Calvary chapels all over the world now. They're everywhere. But that was the epicenter of it. And really the catalyst for the growth of of Calvary Chapel was two things. Getting back to reading the Bible. A new form of music was emerging from this experience. And they were looking at the Six-Day War. And they were looking at what was happening in Israel. And they were saying, wow, the Bible prophecies are true with respect to the reforming of Israel. So therefore, they must be true with respect to the fact that the end is near. The day of the Lord is near, which means the rapture of the church is near. And all of these things were being preached. And it was a movement. It was a wave that came through. And in the same way that there's a whole wave and a whole new way of thinking is sweeping through the world, it's also sweeping through the church, some good, some bad. And it doesn't say don't trust anybody over 30. It says don't trust any institution. And the downside of that is people are leaving some really great tried and true ways of worshiping the Lord because they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. I don't trust any organization. I don't trust any institution. But the upside is people who had previously been in institutions and perhaps Orthodox Judaism as one of them are now willing to say, you know what? I don't know if I trust this institution either. And so the questions come out. And the question is, are we there to answer those questions? Is there anybody there when the big question of, can I really trust this institution? Because as kids in the church are asking that, can I really trust this super mega church that my parents have placed so much value in? Is that really made my life better having brought up in that system? They're asking those questions. Perhaps new systems should be developed or a new way should be out there. Maybe church should actually be smaller, whereas their parents' generation had said, you know, what's most important is to build an institution that's huge and mega and can cover any need that you have. And now people are saying, you know what, maybe Mega's not so big. Maybe kids are saying, maybe, maybe, maybe it should be smaller. And maybe what we've missed in the whole Mega is community. Quite frankly, that's part of the reason why we take a serious amount of time here at Shuva. And we say, you know what, don't just turn and greet the guy you came with. Walk around the room. You can't do that in a church of 15,000 people on a Sunday morning. But in a congregation of believers, which is small... Right now, we don't even have to worry about the questions of what happens when we get to be 3,000. How about we just keep staying the way we are? I'm not saying don't grow. I have no problem with small ministry as long as it doesn't want to stay that way. But let's try to think of how can we retain this community as we grow, in this sense of community as we grow. And as people are starting to ask questions, the first thing that they do, let's just take, for instance, since we're a Messianic congregation, let's say you come from a, from a Jewish background. You've come from a, maybe you come from an ultra-Orthodox background. You know, you're probably not going to walk across the parking lot and walk into here and start asking us questions. In the world that we live in, the first step away from the institution is to do the Google search, to do the Wikipedia search. And to start asking questions. That's why I'm excited about what you guys are doing in Israel. And I think it's important to support what it is that they're doing. Okay? Because they're presenting answers to relevant questions. And in this time, perhaps we can, for the kingdom, leverage the movement of society. Which in oftentimes has become a negative force within the body of Messiah. 
this rejecting of institutions, this rejecting of absolutes. Who says that the Bible is the only way? Because I also get good feelings when I read the words of Gandhi. I also get good feelings when I read about Siddhartha. I also get good feelings when I read about this and other religions. Who says that this is the only way? I'm offended by that. That's what people would say oftentimes. And yet we say, hey, well, Yeshua said it this way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Hey, it doesn't get more exclusive than that. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. There is one way. Exclusively through Yeshua do we find salvation. And at the same time, it's offered liberally to anyone who would believe. Turn from their sin, Jew or Gentile. So the questions start. And the first place where we start getting answers to questions is online these days. You might not be online. You may be offline. You may be so offline that you're just still down to the pad and the pencil. That's the way I get through life. I got my day planner and my pad and my pencil. As a matter of fact, I think that the ballpoint pen is of the devil. I I actually just want a pencil. You may be so far back on technology, but the reality is, is that that's not the way people live anymore. Questions. And we're here today to find answers to questions so that we can learn those answers And so we can move forth from here and give the answers to those people who've yet to come here. Because eventually the online search, if a person is searching for the Lord, eventually he will lead them to those places where there are answers. But there's just some things you can't do online. Okay, You can have Skype conversations, but there's something, ultimately, it just still feels like it is a substitute for what we really want, which is to have personal, dynamic human relations with somebody whose hand we can shake, with somebody whom we can sit down with. I mean, the Skype works, but it works to an extent, and it's still a substitute for the personal relationship. Okay, Israel had questions, and as a matter of fact, there is a book of the Bible which is itself a question. And I don't know if we've got my title up here. I'm not, I'm not good on titles and stuff, but the title to the message today is How. How. There's a, there's a book. Look at that. What is that, by the way? It's a leaf with water on it. I'm just looking at the graphic. How. Right after the book of Jeremiah in a standard Bible, I don't know how it is in the Hebrew Bible because I'm not preaching from one at the moment. But right after the book of Jeremiah is the book of what? Lamentations. Or lamentations, depending on how you... Lamentations, lamentations. God called the whole thing off. And in Hebrew, the book of lamentations is not called the book of lamentations. It's called Echa. Echa. Good enough. Ech means how. Echa. How. That's actually in Hebrew. That's the name of the book. How. Now, I'm a minister. Southern Baptist minister. Okay. I know you're thinking, well, could I have not gotten like a rabbi? I mean, I came to a Messiah messianic congregation i was given my ministry license from the southern baptist in franklin tennessee and i remember looking at this formal document that they gave me which told me exactly what the what is the extent what is the scope of this license because when you get a driver's license you know you can drive your car around but it doesn't mean that you can drive passengers for hire you have to get a whole other livery license for that i think is what they call it and it also doesn't mean that you can drive a semi, like a tractor trailer. You have to have a, you know, a class B and you have to have a class A license. You have to learn how to do air brakes. So if I get a license to minister, what does that mean? And what is the scope of my license? What can I do? For instance, can I marry people? Yes, I can. Can I bury people? Yes, I can. And if you fall asleep during my message, I just may do that. <laughs> so I'm from Memphis. 
And I can also do what they call sacerdotal duties, which made me laugh because it sounded like a George M. Cohan kind of a thing, you know, like Yankee Doodle Dandy. And, uh, but it's actually the opposite of that. It's a sacerdotal, sorry to say, sacerdotal duties, which means I can administer communion and I can do other, I mean, basically the scope of my ministry license is as wide as it could be. And I often get called to minister at funerals. And funerals are interesting times because people process grief in different ways, as you know, and there's stages in, of grief and, and, and the people grieve in different ways. And I've been to funerals where it was almost like a celebration. They're all laughing and joking and having cake afterwards. It's usually the funeral of a believer who was a strong believer. It's usually the funeral of someone who probably had a lot of time to prepare their affairs, put things in order invited all their old friends over and they told jokes and they told stories about the old times. And you know, when, when that person died, it was like, you know, we're sad, but at the same time, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because we know beyond the shadow of a doubt by the authority of scripture and by the articulated truth of the person who was passing away that they knew where they were going. There's no question about it. So while we're sad, we don't grieve as those who are hopeless. We, it's almost a party. But then there's also other funerals that I've been a part of, either through music or through leading. And two years ago, I did a funeral at Riverside Memorial, which is a military seminary, a seminary, cemetery. Well, uh, that's pretty telling, isn't it? A military cemetery. And some of those are very, it's a very austere occasion, I must say. You know, there's the whole shooting of the guns and there's a flag folding and there's a, and, and handing the flag to a widow. And it's just, it's very stirring and very moving, a military funeral. But this guy, while he was a war hero, no doubt, it was also kind of a rascal in his personal life. And later in life, he had divorced his wife and he had children and grandchildren and had married an Irish woman. Nothing wrong with being Irish. I know there's Irish people here. Irish I was. But um, she had a daughter and he was kind of a scoundrel and they kind of probably fell more towards that. And there was an issue after the funeral where there was an argument over a Lincoln town car. And he had given the Lincoln town car to his uh, ex-wife out of guilt, said, I'm really sorry for all you've done and I don't have much to give you, but I'm going to give you this Lincoln. But the problem was he didn't sign over the title. And the second wife showed up late for the funeral, had missed the, the 21 guns and had missed the flag folding. And then she was omitted from the funeral because the first wife had omitted her from the people to say, and he is, he is uh, you know, survived by. And she got angry and she turned to her daughter and said, go get the car, which I had no idea what she was talking about. But the next thing you know, that she was in the car that the other family had come in and was making her way out. And then arguments started and then a fight broke out. And I just what? can I just get back to the happy funerals where they're having cake and talking about the Lord? And in the midst of great calamity, people process grief and suffering and loss in different ways. In Jeremiah, with respect to the book of How, or the book of Lamentations, I don't know that he always gets maybe the right consideration, because number one, he's known as what prophet? As the weeping prophet. My wife and I attended a church which was co-pastored by three individuals in Chicago, three gentlemen, so they took turns every other week, every third week they preached, and so there was one guy, we called him Old Weepy, because every sermon he found a way to cry. And I say found a way, maybe he really was that empathetic, but it's just like, really, you got to cry. And we would almost take bets as to when, at what point in the sermon he would start crying or tear up or choke up. And I got to tell you, I'm not against emotion. 
And I think I probably have had moments in my, in my life where times in life were so hard and I was so disengaged with, with the Lord and, and, and his word. And I wept a lot because life had not turned out the way that I thought that it would, even life as a believer. And to the point where I think I was almost emotionally incontinent. And anything that would happen in my life, it would just cause me to cry. And I, so I understand seasons of my life, but every time I speak... And so we've lost more and more respect for the guy whose emotions were really loose. And it was kind of hard to trust him. And I think sometimes people think of Jeremiah and they think of the weeping prophet. And if you're a man or you're striving to be a man's man, you don't want to be known as the weeping prophet. You'd rather be known as like David, you know, a guy who could fight bears and stuff. So then when you go from the weeping prophet to lamentations, a lot of people are like, do I need more lament in my life? I think I'm just going to skip past that. And if you do that and you're like, I'm going to read everything, but I don't want to read Lamentation, so I'm going to skip from, from Jeremiah straight to Ezekiel, you're really doing yourself a disservice. And quite frankly, the word Lamentations is really not a proper description of what the book is about anyway. The word how is a better description of that book. And as a matter of fact, in Hebrew, that's really what the name of the book is, how. The translators called it Lamentations because it is a lament. And historically, there had been laments about other towns that had fallen, writing a great lofty lament about how great the city was and how it'll never be what it used to be and all of these things, these great laments. And so when the translators got to, got to the book of how, they just called it, a, it's, it's lamentations, it's laments. But when you read it and you actually analyze it, the book of lamentations is very orderly. It's not like the hysterical lament of those people when you see them on the news in a, you know, a, maybe a, you know, war torn, especially the Middle East, you know, and maybe a missile comes through and stuff goes everywhere and everybody's freaking out. And, and then you try to interview the mother whose children were just, you know, were just dead. And, and then you, it's almost hysterical and you, and you have empathy for them and you, and you, and you feel for them because, because you say, I don't know that I could grasp for the words to find. And so when you go from the weeping prophet, Jerusalem has been destroyed and now you go to Lamentations, you think to yourself, this is going to be a disorderly rant. And I've got five chapters of a guy just droning on and on and on about the loss of a great city. But when you analyze it, you realize that it's very orderly. As a matter of fact, it's like Psalm 119, where you, it's, it's actually like an acrostic, where it's written in, in the Hebrew letter, refers to a point, and then they're going through the alphabet. And it's point by point, how did we get here? How could God allow this to happen to us? How can we move beyond this and have a hope? And how could we ever have that personal relationship with the Lord again? If you understand how, then you understand the way that the book of Lamentations, or Echa, is laid out. How? And I think this is a relevant question for a nation who was about to choose a president and who can look to just uh, 20 years ago and we had a balanced budget. And you say, what? How? How do we go from Reagan era of we can make walls fall down, walls of Jericho, walls of Berlin. How can we have the influence to make walls fall down, bring down whole institutions like communism? And some 30 so years later, have almost no influence at all. The very same nation whom we brought down just simply by building up defenses and staying strong 
is now thumbing their nose at us, even in its weakened, decentralized state. And the same nation that had a balanced budget during the Clinton era. How can we now be, I don't even know how many trillions of dollars in debt that we are. Does anybody know? 16? Listen, I don't know how much a trillion is, but it's more than I make in a year. (laughs) There's two things that confound a fool, right? How slow God is to act and how quickly he shows up. And the people of Jerusalem had been so foolish. Back in 2 Chronicles 24, we see a guy named Josiah. And then he was a young guy. And in his day and age, he was bent on reform. And so he starts reforms. And as they start reforms, we've talked about it in the past. They start moving idols out. And they start moving idolatry out of your congregation. And what do you eventually find? Oh, the word of the Lord. We've been missing it. But we hadn't been missing it so much that we'd actually been looking for it. But when we start clearing idols out of our lives, eventually what we find again in our congregations is the word of the Lord. We're like, how did that happen? And then that takes us to Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 1-1, right? Don't follow the advice of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of the scornful or the mocker. And we recognize there's a process that when you leave the advice of the Lord and you start seeking the counsel of the world, the wicked, it puts you into motion. It sets you at a distance. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to listen to the world. Yeah, I'm going to walk in that way for a while because this seems old and stuffy and not relevant to me in my culture that I live in. So I'm going to start walking away from that by first supplementing worldliness to my belief. And then the more that I do that, I supplement more worldliness. And then pretty soon you reach a tipping point where there's more worldliness in your theology than there is the word of the Lord. And now you find yourself, what, standing in the path of sinners. First, you're just taking the advice. Now you're finding yourself standing in the path of sinners. You know what? I don't really know that there's any difference in my life than there is in the difference of the life of a non-believer. And then it's no more time than you find yourself drifting further and further away. Nothing against Joyce. I know this is the keyboard station. Let me go up here. You find yourself drifting away and then you find yourself now what? Now you're firmly established and you're sitting in the seat of the mocker, of the scornful. Now you're looking at true believers who actually believe that this is the word of the Lord. And now what are you doing? You're persecuting them. You're casting dispersions at all. Don't listen to those guys, man. Order up another round for everybody. They're starting to talk about those guys. I used to be one of those guys. And when I was one of those guys, I was so uptight. And now here I am sitting with you guys. Any Christian ever come over here and get drunk with you guys? And the guys that are over there whose lives are horrible are going, no, but you see, we're trying to find a life where we don't have to get drunk. So now you find yourself firmly established and now you find yourself now mocking true believers. That's how it happens. That's the process. In Josiah's day, that was the situation. And so he was bent on reform. Let's start getting rid of the idolatry. So now from this point, which is where their fathers had been. Now from this point, let's start getting rid of idols and let's just start by doing that. We move further and further closer to what is something that is found in Second Chronicles 34. They found the book of the law written by Moses. Hilkiah the priest gives it to Shaphan the secretary. Shaphan the secretary takes it to Josiah. First he reports on the business that they're doing there. Hey, we're taking in the money and all the workers are doing what they're doing. And then from there, he says to him, he says, oh, hey, by the way, Hilkiah found a book and he read from the book to Josiah. And in the days of Josiah, Josiah tore his robe and he says, man, if the stuff that you're reading to me in this book is actually going to happen to us, woe is us. Somebody find a prophet somewhere. They go, they find a prophetess. She says, yeah, but you know what the Lord said? That because your heart is bent on returning to me, 
I'm going to stave off the inevitable for your generation. Listen, guys, the stuff that happens at the end of the Brit Hadashah, the, the, the new covenant, the stuff called the revelation, that stuff's really going to happen someday. Did you know that? It's going to happen. For almost 2,000 years, they say, how in the world could Israel come together again as a nation? It could never happen. Whole schools of theology were invented in order to explain away and downplay those types of verses. And yet, what happened in 1948? Became a nation again. It's a miracle. Now, did those theology schools close their doors? No, they didn't. So they still exist today. (laughs) And they find other ways around it. And that's wrong. But the point is, is that everything that happened just because 2,000 years or so has gone by doesn't mean that it's not actually going to happen and happen exactly the way that the Lord says that it will happen. Okay? For Josiah, in his generation, judgment was staved off. But then in Jeremiah, did I say Jeremiah? For Josiah, in his generation, judgment was staved off. But by the time you get to Jeremiah 36, verses 20 through 26, you have a sharp contrast. Same exact situation. Hey, the Babylonians are at the door and they're about to besiege us. And the Lord is giving a message through Jeremiah, at least early on in his ministry. He's saying, the Lord says, if you'll repent right now, he can turn these guys away from you. If you'll turn from your sin and you will repent right now. Very different from the days of Josiah. And then the king sits there and as they read to him, the accusations of the Lord And the pronouncements of judgment, if they don't repent, what does the king do? He doesn't tear his robe. He doesn't say, hey, man, find me a prophet to tell me, is this really true? Because if it is, we better get to repenting because because the Lord's going to bring judgment upon us. And maybe he'll stave it off for our generation. No, the king doesn't do that. What does he do? He takes a scribe's knife and he cuts it into pieces. And every time they read a line, he cuts it and he throws it into the fire. And because that was the attitude of the leader towards the word of the Lord, same word of the Lord, which came to Josiah, Josiah repented, judgment was staved off because the leader then, when he heard the word of the Lord said, now throw it in the fire. Now what's going to happen? What we know happened. The Babylonians did overtake it. They did tear down the temple. They did take the articles of worship and ship them off to a storage unit for 70 years later. When some other king says, Hey, open the old storage unit down there. We paid our bill, right? Storage wars guys didn't get that. Did they? Open up that thing. Send all that stuff back to Jerusalem. Let the people of the Lord go back and worship him in Jerusalem. Rebuild their temple. Do their whole thing. No. In the days of Jeremiah, the king did not listen. And the people primarily did not listen. Those who did listen got out of Dodge. And they went into captivity with the Babylonians. And the Lord preserved them. Guys with names like Ezekiel. Guys with names like Daniel. Guys with names like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And several others. And they survived. And so they were a remnant. And I'm telling you right now, people, there's an old saying, guy goes up, knocks on a door, traveling salesman, door opens up, seven-year-old kid stands there, big cigar in his mouth. Guy looks at the kid. He goes, hey, is your mom home? Kid takes a big old puff on that cigar, blows the smoke in his face. And he says, now, what do you think? (laughs) There are some things that are so obvious that we don't have to ask. Is the United States on a downward trajectory? Yes, we are. And do you think that that downward trajectory has anything to do with morality? Yes, it does. And do you think that there is a moral lawgiver? Yes, we do. And do we think that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, we do. So do we think that America has primarily rejected the Lord and his word? Yes, we do. And unless there is revival in our days... We cannot predict any other end for America. 
than the one that we read about at the end of Jeremiah. We say it couldn't happen. There's no way that could happen. America is too strong. Oh, really? I'm sorry, did we not already just cover Bill Clinton balanced budget? 16 trillion in debt within 30 years? You don't think this could happen within your lifetime? Then you've never studied empires because there's never been one which lasted for more than 400 years. Lamentations 5 is a prayer for restoration. Already preached the message. So let's read the text. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Lord, are you seeing this? Are, Are you seeing this? You see, when your theology moves away from the book and becomes the culture of following the Lord, becomes the culture of church, then you may grow up with some values which you think are godly values, but they themselves may actually be contra to the scripture, consistent with Christian culture. And I know I'm talking to a messianic community here, so please use the word Christian loosely. Consistent with the culture of believers, but inconsistent with the word, so that you have certain assumptions about the Lord which are not biblical. For instance, well, hey, listen, I'm a believer, so, you know, nothing ever bad is going to happen to me. As a matter of fact, prosperity and Cadillacs is in my future. We laugh at that. But in the 1980s, there were millions of people that bought into it. And there was a lot of guys that made millions of dollars off of their biblical illiteracy. And we say the Lord would never bring down America. I mean, look at how many missionaries come out of America. Look at all the mission work that happens in America. God needs us. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. God needs us? No, we need him. And with every generation which walks further and further away from this word, a generation will arise from within this postmodern culture which rejects this absolute completely. And the tipping point, the number of those people who don't believe in this word will reach a point to where it's almost unstoppable, barring divine intervention. And they will rise up and just like they said in Europe, you know what the real problem with Europe is? Too many Jews. Let's kill them all. There will be a day that comes up that says, you know what the problem with the world is? Too many believers in Yeshua. Too many Christians. They're the ones that foul everything up. Let's find those Christians who say that we can all coexist. Those are the Christians we want. Let's get rid of the the dogmatic ones. The ones who say this is the way and the only way. We'll get rid of those Muslims who believe that way. We'll get rid of those Hindus who believe that way. We'll get rid of those Christians who believe that way. And especially the Messianics. We'll get rid of those Jews who believe this way. All the extremists have got to go. And eventually there'll be a war and a purging. You say it could never happen. Well, that's funny. That's exactly what they told Jeremiah. And yet there he was, the -the on-the-scenes reporter saying, hey, yo, it's happening. The same way that Isaiah said 100 years ago it was going to happen, I'm telling you right now, it's happening exactly the way that it was predicted to happen. If you don't think the end of this book will happen, that you don't have, you got to have a problem with the fact that, that Jeremiah ever happened. If it happened in the days of Noah, it'll happen to us. If it happened in the days of, of Jeremiah, it'll happen to us. If it happened to that generation after the generation of Joshua, where they didn't know the word of the Lord, and then they had to have judge after judge has to rise up, and the people kind of have a little revival, and then they go back down, and another judge comes in a revival, and they go back down. If you don't think that happened in the days of Yeshua, after Yeshua, when the Romans tore down Jerusalem, and they tore down the temple, if you don't think that that's also going to happen to us for the very same reasons that happened to all the other generations, what are you, foolish? It is going to happen. 
It is inevitable and it will happen. Why? Because the Lord says it will happen. But we know that in our day and in our time and in our generation, we can stave it off. If we return to the Lord and trust in the Lord, always lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In such a crooked and perverse generation that we live in. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens, not the Steven Spielberg type, foreigners. In our house to foreigners, we have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. You got a picture for the sort of the, the days of Joshua when they cross over into the land and the Lord says, hey, listen, you're going to live in houses that you didn't build and you're going to eat from fields that you didn't plant. And I'm not doing this because you're righteous, Israel. I'm doing this because they're evil. You're a stiff-necked people, and aren't we? And now how the tables have turned. Now foreigners are eating in our house, living in our houses and eating from our fields. And our mothers are widows. We pay for the water we drink, and wood comes at a price. Can you imagine a society where you have to pay for water and electricity, and you're taxed for it? <laughs> oh, wait. We pay for the water that we drink, and our wood comes at a price. Basically, they were taxed everywhere they turned. You draw water? Oh yeah, the Babylonians have a tax for the water drawing tax. We've got a big social program over in Babylon. Somebody's got to pay for it. Oh, you're going to chop down wood? Well, we're going to have to be taxed for the wood. So glad that we don't have a government which overtaxes us. They pursue at our heels. We have labor and no rest. Basically, we're slaves to the system. We have given our hand to the Egyptians. Basically, we've sold ourselves to the Egyptians and the Assyrians so that we could be satisfied with bread. In Genesis 47, verses 13 through 23, it tells the account of a guy named Joseph. You guys remember Joseph, prince of Egypt, coat of many colors, beaten up by his brothers, almost killed, sold into slavery, goes down there, gets accused of things he didn't do, serves prison time for a bad rap, finally gets out because he interprets dreams, and the next thing you know, he rises to be next in line to the throne. It's a great success story, better than Elvis. Goes from nothing to the king. And this guy, Joseph was really shrewd. Shrewd doesn't always mean like a shyster. You know, shrewd just means you make good deals. You make good sense. And the Lord had given him vision for the future. Hey, seven years of good times, seven years of bad times. Start storing it up. So he did. He started storing it up. And then the people, sure enough, the good times were happy days are here again. And then pretty soon the famine came. And towards the end of the seven years of famine, the Egyptians were so completely famished. They had sold everything that they had. They said, Joseph, listen, the only thing that we could do is sell ourselves to you. When we think of Egypt and we think of Israel, we always think of the Israelites as having been the slaves to the Egyptians. But there was a time when all of the Egyptians said, listen, you own everything we have, Joseph. So we're going to sell ourselves to Pharaoh. Every Egyptian was a slave to the government. Then arose a Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. And they said, man, you know what? We've been going through hard times. And these Israelites down in Goshen have been doing pretty good and they're growing like weeds down there. It's like kudzu. If you don't know what kudzu is, you've never been to the south. It's the weed which ate the south. They had to try to do erosion control down in Florida and down in the marshes around uh, Louisiana. So they took this plant from Africa called kudzu. It's a great idea, you know. The animals lead it and, and then it'll, it'll start covering the land and it'll dry up all the marshes. And the only problem is, is that once kudzu starts, you can't stop it. So now you see kudzu up in Tennessee. It's the plant that ate the south. It's almost impossible to kill. Well, that's the way the Israelites had become to the Egyptians in the eyes of a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and understand the knowledge 
and how smart it would be if we trusted a guy who trusted the Lord. And so they enslaved them. That's how we know them. Now here they are after having escaped the slavery. Now they're just like the Egyptians were. When the famine came, you know, we're selling ourselves into slavery to the Egyptians and we're selling ourselves into slavery to the Assyrians for bread. And our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Now here we go, a little blame shifting. Any psychologists in the room? I know I did that thing that I wasn't supposed to do, but the reason why I did it was because my mother never loved me. Oh, Freud, where art thou? When are we going to be accountable for our own actions? Yeah, you know what? You might have had a bad rap. A lot of us did. You might have had parents that didn't love you. A lot of us did. You might have been abused. A lot of us were. But in Messiah, we become a new creation. Hey, don't blame your problems on your fathers and your mothers. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. You ever see the help? There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. I'm sorry, because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven because of the fever and famine. They ravished the women in Zion, maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones and boys stagger under the loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. I teach songwriting. I taught songwriting at the University of Memphis. I taught at Columbia University in Chicago. I've taught with Grammy in the schools over the years. I've been in the music business, if you don't know this, for a long time, since 1990. And, uh, and still I'm in the music business. It's like a tar baby. It's like a tar baby that <clears throat> once you've stuck your hand in it, you can't get your hand out of it. So publishing lasts forever. And so I'm still in the music business. And as I teach songwriting, one of the things I ask when I teach believers, because I want to teach people how to write songs which praise the Lord. And I say, do you have a favorite psalm? And almost everybody does. And I say, okay, could you hum a few bars of it for me? And then they all start laughing. Because why? Because we, we, don't, we don't know the melodies to the songs. We lost them. When do we lose the melodies to the psalms? Why aren't we singing those melodies? Psalm 137 says, listen, by the rivers of Babylon, we took our harps and we did what? We hung them up on the trees. Because the Babylonians demanded from us songs of Zion. Hey, sing us a song of Cameron land. Sing us songs of mirth and joy that you used to sing when you were in Israel. And they said, we can't sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land. How long were they in exile? At least 70 years. You guys remember what was number one 70 years ago on the charts? I don't think you do. Well, you can because you... Ed went to high school with Moses. Listen, I'm not saying that Ed is old. I'm just saying his social security number is seven. <laughs> Giving you a hard time. Yeah, that's where we lost a lot of them. We can't sing the songs of the Lord in a strange land. Our young men, the music is gone. Psalm 137 says where it went. The joy of our hearts has ceased and our dance has turned into mourning. But remember Psalm 30, 11? He turns our mourning into dancing. The crown has fallen from our head. Now we have a little bit of ownership. We had a little blame shifting. Ownership says this, woe to us for we have sinned. It's not just our parents who have sinned. And listen, if you're a person who believes in generational curses, stop it. There is no such thing. It is a lie. There is no such thing as a generational curse that you're somehow caught up in some kind of a mojo that you can't get out of. Now, there are patterns of sin that are passed down throughout generations. But if we want to talk about a powder of sin, now we can talk about the one who has power over sin. You may have some patterns of sin which were passed down from generation to generation, but that doesn't mean you can't be free of it. 
Matter of fact, you're the generation that the Lord wants to see those patterns broken. But first, you have to take ownership for your own sin and stop blaming the future, gen- the past generations. Woe to us, for we have sinned because our heart, because of this, our heart is faint. In recovery, they say that the first step to recovery is what? Admitting you have a problem. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grew dim. And because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. I don't know if it directly relates, but it reminds me of Luke 13, 32, where they said, hey, Yeshua, Herod's looking for you. And he says, hey, you tell that fox, Herod, here's my schedule. Here's my day planner. I'm not going to be crucified until the time has come. So don't try to scare me with the fact that that fox is roaming around. Well, guess what? Foxes are walking around on it. Foxes are scavengers. They're like the jackals. You, O Lord, remain forever. You see, listen, Jerusalem can be destroyed. And it's hard for us to see, but you know what? It could be destroyed again. But let's just say that it was destroyed again. Well, then that's it. There will be no Israel. Oh, no, there will be. Because the Lord gives promises that are forever. Covenants that are forever. And while we may be rebuked for our sin, the covenant lasts forever remains forever. Jerusalem is toast, but you, Lord, remain forever. You're thrown from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? And you know what? Whenever the Lord is rebuking you for sin in your life, it does feel like he's rejected you forever because we only see things through human eyes and human relationships. And if somebody ever did that to me, I'm going to tell you right now, I would never talk to him again. But the Lord says, you know what? You may feel like I'm not with you, but I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. But I may make it to where you can search for me, but you won't find me. But it doesn't mean that I'm not there and that I don't care or that my character has changed. But for us, we say, Lord, why are you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn back to us, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew us as of days of old. Zechariah 1.3 has a whole other thing where the Lord speaks to Israel. Israel says, Lord, turn back to us and we'll be restored. And the Lord says, hey, turn back to me and I'll turn back to you. You ever play checkers? Checkers is a poor man's chess. Everybody can play checkers. I love checkers. I, I always forget what moves or go to what in chess. So I'm not a great chess player, but I think I'm a pretty wily checker player. You can go to Cracker Barrel and you can play a chess board, which is as big as this Bima. Big, huge things where you're, it's, it's impossible to not see what's going on in one of those types of big checker games. But you ever get in a good checker game and because it's not really intellectually challenging, You start talking about life and whatever, and then you start telling a story, and then you hear another story, and then somebody brings you a cup of coffee, and you get, oh, you know what, we'll go get with this as a biscuit. And then the next thing you know, you're like, you know, whose move was it? And in the book of how, how did we get here? Well, we know how they got here. How could a God who loves us let this happen? And we say, oh, well, how could a God of justice not punish sin? Huh, huh. Well, then how do we return Oh, I know how it is. Lord, it's your move. It's your move, right? Wasn't it your move? You return to us and then we'll be restored. And the Lord is like, no, it's not my move. It's your move. What do you mean? It's your move. How, do, how, do, how, do, how are you restored? Well, then you return. To, you, it's your turn to return to me. No, Lord, I've been, I, think I, was, I, think I'm, I think I'm on this thing. He says, no, no, it's, 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 it's your move. The Bible says, and that while we were yet sinners, that Messiah, Yeshua, died for us. See, that was his move. And then John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that's, that was his move, that he gave his only son. That's right, that was his move. And see, what did his son do for us? As he died on a cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, he purchased a place for And whosoever believes in him, okay, whosoever, that's, I'm a whosoever, that's one of me. 
shall not perish, but have eternal life. So whosoever believes, okay, I don't believe his move was pays penalty for my sin, says to me, okay, it's your move now. So, okay, so my move is, do I believe? Have I received it? You see, how are we restored, not just to Jerusalem, not just restore the temple, but how are we restored to a right relationship with God? His move was the last move, and now it's your move. And the real question that we have when we come this morning, for those of us who don't know him in a saving way, is what's my next move? And your next move is saying, Lord, I believe. I believe that Yeshua paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe that he rose from the grave and he is alive today. And as he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will surely come back and get you and take you to that place. What is coming forth? What are they looking for as they're looking at the burning smoke of the old Jerusalem? What are they longing for? They're longing for a new Jerusalem. And what is awaiting us who believe and who have received the atonement which we could neither afford nor did we deserve and yet was given, offered freely to us who would believe? Whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Do I believe that he really rose from the grave? And is preparing a place for me. And he will come and receive me to it. And that is a place which the Bible says in the Revelation. I think it's somewhere around Revelation 20. And behold, I saw what? A new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Not made with human hands. But one which the Lord has prepared. It doesn't have to be built with the charred remains of the old Jerusalem. Although they're doing a pretty good job in Jerusalem today. Of finding rocks and putting them where they were and stacking things back up. But listen, man, there's a new one which remains for us. If we would turn from our sin and we would turn to him, the real question is, what have you done with your move? Because it's not God's chance. It's not his move now to do something miraculous and spectacular in your life. It's your move to receive the truth of his word, to reject the counsel of the wicked and to receive the counsel of the Lord and say, you know what? I want to start moving in the other direction. And I want to, I want to, follow the advice of the the Lord. And I want to find myself standing in the path of the righteous and then eventually seated, ruling and reigning with him in eternity. What's your move? Your move is this, to say, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. But Lord, I believe. And I'm committing myself to follow you. And grant as you grant to all believers the gift of your Holy Spirit so that when I read this word, then you can show me what it really means. Not by the advice of men, but by the power of your spirit, reveal your word to me so that I can live a life which honors you. And perhaps then my testimony will go out and encourage others to believe and to follow you. That's why we're here. And that is our mission in life. We know how America got where it's gotten. And now we know how it's going to get out of where it is. It's incumbent upon you and your personal belief and your personal faith. And then us coming together as a congregation and then coming together with other congregations who believe in the same way, so that in our day and age, perhaps there could be what Josiah saw and not what the generation of Jeremiah saw. Amen? That's the great how. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to show us your word as we commit to read it. And for those who don't believe in you, Lord, we pray that they would find you even now this morning, Lord, if in hearts that they prayed that, Lord, and that they would confess it with their mouths, Lord, you say that they will be saved. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, but perhaps have just sort of found some place of comfort just going to, just going to the synagogue and back home, Lord, we pray, Lord, that this would light a fire within us. 
There is hard destruction which is coming. And for strong believers and for those who are not believers at all, it's going to come down hard on this nation. Because we are a nation, Lord, who needs to confess our sin before you, Lord, and lay ourselves before you and throw ourselves at your mercy, Lord, and say, Lord, heal us now. But as you say in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and confess their sin, that I'll heal them and restore their land. Lord, let it be so in our day and in our generation. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, by whose power we can pray these things and by whose grace we have atonement. And we commit this to you now in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Stay tuned to Solace Radio. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened uh, to the children of Israel. Of course, a lot of it they brought on themselves, right? A trip that maybe was only supposed to take a few months ends up taking 40 years. Can you imagine? Set out on a trip that's going to take, you know, whatever, and all of a sudden, you know, 38 years later, you finally may be at the edge and getting to the destination. But they suffer the consequences of disobedience, of jealousy, of pride, of offense, anger, all these things. And, and today we're going to look at how uh, they went from those things to actually outright idolatry, immorality, um, and they suffered because of their sin. And the story of the wanderings of our ancestors in the wilderness is, you know, we find the thread of that throughout the scriptures. Uh, an example of that is Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 95, actually. It says, verse 7, do we have that scripture, Hebrews 3? Verse 7, therefore, so this is the writer of Hebrews writing it, therefore, just as the Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit says, now it quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. There your fathers put me to the test, though they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, verse 10, I was provoked by this generation and I said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so we see this theme throughout. I was just reading Psalm 106 this morning, and it recounts again this wanderings and and the disobedience and rebellion that our people went through and the consequences, the suffering they went through. And it didn't stop there. Because if you know the history, as soon as they get into the land, even as we read the Haftorah portion from the uh, prophets, this constant theme of, you know, they, 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 they witness, they experience the miracles of God, but yet then they fall into rebellion and disobedience and follow after the gods of the nation. Of course, we're, none of us are ever like that. Right, no, because we've just been straight arrow, following God, no, no distraction, no, none of that. Right, verse eleven. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God. Verse thirteen. But what? Encourage one another day by day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin which is what our ancestors did. So today's Torah portion, uh, we have the story that at least 
um, shared about, Balak, Balaam. And it's really a strange story, isn't it? But it fits with all the other strange stories that we had before, right? Snakes last week, and the week before it was Korach and his rebellion, and before that it was Moses, um, Miriam and Aaron, very siblings of of, of Moses, uh, you know, complaining, fetching, and rising up against them, right? And in each case, the rebellion, the disobedience, is met with God's consequences. Hello. There are consequences for disobedience and making those wrong choices. Anyone ever experienced any? Or am I the only one? No. Thank you. <laughs> so, that today it takes this rebellion to a different level because now we have the occult and we have witchcraft. But in the midst of that, we have God, again, God's mercy and God's sovereignty. So, just to set the setting, it's now close to the end of the 40 years of wandering. So the next generation, right, that first generation that rebelled, they pretty much died off. This next generation is getting ready to enter the promised land. Moab, which is modern-day Jordan, uh, stood in the way of Israel crossing the Jordan to claim her inheritance. So, as Elise shared, um, the king of Moab, you know, he was a guy named Balak, uh, he sent for Balaam. So, it must have been, so Balaam must have been like the Edgar Casey of his generation. I mean, you know who he was, right? He was like the prophet, you know, whatever, right? Of the occult and the, and, and, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, clairvoyant, right? So, Balaam was apparently a very famous sorcerer and practitioner of the occult and witchcraft. And think about it, he was in a place that was in modern-day Iraq, right? So it wasn't just, you know, going, you know, across the river or, or you know, across the town. He was a great distance away. And this guy, Balak, and the word Balak means destroyer, waste, or devastator, uh, ben Sipor, interesting, a little side note for those of you that are Bible nerds, maybe you already know this, Ben Sipor. So when you hear the Ben something, it's usually, you know, uh, the father's name. Ben is son of, and it's very typical, Yoshua Ben Nun, right? But the scholars say his father's name was not, was not Sipor, because Sipor is a Hebrew word for bird. His father's name was not bird, apparently, right? So, um, in this case, it refers, this is the, the, it's not in the scripture, so this is a rabbinic commentary, uh, refers to a metal bird that he supposedly walked around on his shoulder with, and apparently that bird, at least this is according to the legend, gave him, um, occultic powers and magic, right? And according to the tradition, because he was in the same vein of this occultic witchcraft and so forth, he knew Balaam, Balaam, um, and apparently he had engaged Balaam's services in a previous uh, encounter with an enemy, and he was successful. And so, of course, who are you going to call? Balaam, right? Not Ghostbusters, they weren't around then. 
So why not again? So Balaam, Balaam means either means curse of a nation or Bliam means without a nation. So interesting name for a sorcerer, right? Um, and so in this story, uh, you know, we have the donkey story, which at least elaborated on, and it seems contradictory. So first God tells him not to go, and apparently he has some understanding of the God of Israel. So then the king sends a second group of more notable officials, and he still refuses to go. But then God tells him to go with them, but only speak what he speaks first. So it's kind of a little bizarre how that goes. And God's going to take charge of his tongue, as we know. But first he takes charge of the donkey's tongue, right? And normally we think of donkeys as dumb animals, right? In fact, Peter refers to Balaam's dumb donkey in that way. Second Peter 2.15, in reference to rebellious and evil people. And he wrote this about those people. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop sinning, enticing unstable souls. They have hearts trained in greed, a cursed brood. They have abandoned the straight way. Catch this. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he received a rebuke for his own wrongdoing. A dumb donkey spoke with a man's voice and put a stop to the prophet's madness. So again, we generally think of donkeys as dumb animals, unless it's Shrek's donkey. Shrek's donkey was pretty smart, don't you think? You know, he was able to, you know, give Shrek some input, some wisdom there. But in this story, God speaks to the lowly dumb donkey and rebukes the high and mighty Balaam, telling us, lesson for us, hello, God could speak through anybody. No matter how, how high and mighty we may think we are, someone can come along, maybe even someone that we think is just a dumb donkey. I won't say the other word. Right? And... So the donkey sees the angel who's holding the sword, but Balaam didn't see him. Well, he shared about that. Okay, but, So the story is funny in many, way, many ways, but there's a lot going on here that I believe God wants to teach us, his people then and his people now, meaning us. So Balaam finally goes, as you know, to meet Balak in Moab. They see the children of Israel, so they're standing on a hill. And... Balaam is telling Balak, look, I'm only going to be able to speak what God tells me. So, you know, there's this debate I hear all the time. Was Balaam a believer in the God of Israel? Was he not? Well, in the end, we have to conclude that he was not. Now, somehow, just like many occult people, they have some belief about what we, who we call the God of Israel, right? But are they believers, followers of that God? No. Clearly, Balaam wasn't because later chapters, God tells Moses to kill him, along with the other sorcerers and so forth, right? And of course, we have the words of Peter, that's, uh, Peter, yeah, that said, that we just read, that he was, uh, you know, not, not a godly man. So, every time he opens his mouth to speak, Balak is expecting him to curse Israel, and these beautiful words come out. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob? Like, 
like uh, what we say every week in the Matovu, right? And every time he opens his mouth to curse Israel, blessing comes out. How lovely are your tents? Numbers 24, 5. Uh, we know that one. In another blessing, he prophesies about the future king that will come. A star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel and crush Israel's enemies, right? Which we understand to be a messianic prophecy. And he even states, this is ironic and humorous, catch it, Numbers 23.23, there is no sorcery effective against Jacob or any divination against Israel. Now it will be said of Jacob and Israel, see what God has done. Right? Incredible. So there's two stories going on here, right? The story up in the heavenlies that God is speaking through uh, Balaam to bless Israel. It's kind of a, the inverse of what God spoke to Abraham back in Genesis 12, right? Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that bless uh, curse you. But here we have a flip of that same thing where God is saying, no, you cannot bless, or you cannot curse what I have blessed. Right? Very important. But here's the sad part of the story. While the enemy could not curse Israel because God's word is stronger, right, than what the enemy, in this case working through Balak, trying to curse Israel, yet Israel was brought it upon themselves. They brought the curse upon themselves. They were enticed through immorality and idolatry. So here at the bottom, so so Balaam and Balak are on the top of the mountain, and Balak is wanting Balaam to curse Israel, and every word that comes out of Balaam's mouth is blessing, but Israel doesn't know what's going on. They're on the bottom there, right? And guess what happens? They get enticed into Idolatry. Let's read Numbers 25, verse, starting verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the people began to have immoral sexual relations with women from Moab. So what's happening? The men of Israel are being seduced into having immorality with the women of Moab. Then they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, so the people were eating and bowing down before their gods. Verse 3, when Israel became bound to Baal Peor, the anger of Adonai grew hot against Israel. Okay, what's going on? So Baal, the word Baal means Lord. So all of the gods, you know, the various idolatrous gods of the nations were all Baal. It just means Lord. Baal Peor, the word Peor means opening not clear what that means, but apparently it was the god of Moabites. Okay, And often with the rituals of worshiping, there were fertility rites, meaning that one of the ways that they would worship their gods was having mm -mm in front of them. I know, we're all adults, but you get the picture, right? I think we're all adults here. And so that was a way to worship that god, those gods. So this is what's happening. And they became bound. They became connected to this uh, idol who is the god of the Moabites. How did they do it? They did it the way the Moabites did it, by having sexual relations in front of whatever it was. And, um, and the 
Commentators say that Beor was on the top of the mountain because all the pagan worships typically were on tops of mountains. Why? Because they had, they felt like they were closer to the sun or the moon or the stars or whatever they happened to be worshiping, right? So they were up high and now children of Israel falling into it. Verse four, Adonai said to Moses, seal, seize all the ringleaders, hang them before Adonai. Uh, facing the sun so that Adonai's fierce anger may be turned away from Israel. So there's some connection there with the sun. Not going to go down that road, but it's there. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill your men who have been joined together themselves to Baal of Beor. Verse 6, a hero arises. Then behold, a man from Bnei Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to the brothers before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Bnei Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Sorry, the hero comes in the next verse. <laughs> verse 7, when Pinchas, son of Eliezer, woo, yay, Pinchas. We're going to hear more about him next week. Right, Ariel? It's her bat mitzvah next week. Uh, bat mitzvah anniversary. When Finchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, he's Aaron's grandson, the Kohen saw it, he arose from the midst of the assembly, took a spear in his hand, went after, verse 8, went after the man of Israel into the tent. So this guy is just, you know, flagrantly with this woman, right, doing the thing, doing the deed in front of Moses and the leaders. Now, maybe at this point Moses just said, I have no more energy to fight these rebellious people. And he just goes passive, apparently. But his grandson, actually Aaron's grandson, so it would be his grandnephew, stands up, this guy's named Pinchas, Phineas, and he takes the spear and he drives the spear right through the Israelite man and the woman's belly. Then the plague of Ben Israel was stopped. However, 24,000 were dead because of the plague. So through this whole story, what do we have that we haven't had before? We have the introduction of the occult. Balaam was a sorcerer, apparently a famous one. But even though God did not allow him to curse Israel, that the story was going on from above, yet Israel nevertheless was seduced, in an essence, into, into cursing itself. It cursed itself and ended up falling into full-blown immorality, idolatry, worship of foreign gods under the influence of the cult. And later, Deuteronomy 18, God specifically, you can look it up, we'll skip that scripture, but you could look it up. God specifically forbids them um, there must be not found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or a fortune teller, soothsayer, omen reading, sorcerer, or one who casts spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Adonai. Because of these abominations, Adonai your God is driving them out from before you. You are to be blameless. Before Adonai your God, for these nations which are, which you are about to dispossess, listen to soothsayers and fortune tellers. But as for you, Adonai your God will not allow you to do so. And so the exact thing 
that God warned them. So now this might be later, I'm not sure the timeline there, of the event uh, that we just read in Numbers. But we know from the book of Judges, we know from the prophets, we know from all of Israel's history that over and over again, God, uh, Israel did exactly this, exactly what he warned them not to do, which was to fall into following the gods of the nations around them. And the, on the contrary, they were to go in and show through their lives and through their love of God, the, the one true God and his love to them, how good the God of Israel is so that the nations around them would turn to him. But they failed over and over again. And guess what? Today, lots of Jewish people are still into the occult. I was into it. Anyone else was into it? New Age, occult, you know, astrology, tarot cards, I Ching. No one? I'm the only one. Okay. I think there's more of you that were into it. Come on. And I believe that, and, and it's a fact that, uh, I don't know if it's a majority, but a disproportionate number of people in the New Age even today are Jewish people. Israel. If you go to Israel, you know it's big in Israel. And what what falls from that? You know, immorality, all the whole homosexual thing, and all that. It's all tied together. Why? Because it's the enemy's um, strategy to keep our people from knowing him. And so we, you know, we've been taught, no, Jesus is not for Jews. So anything else is okay. Buddhism is okay. The occult is okay. The new age is okay. Anything but Jesus. Right? How many of you heard that? I certainly. But all of that represents the ultimate rebellion against God. And it's at work today, even stronger than ever. Occult can be defined as any practice that uses supernatural power or knowledge apart from Yeshua. And Satan is the master of deceiver. And he loves, he loves, loves, loves the occult in all its forms, all its forms. We could spend lots of time on that, but it's not necessary. So there's nothing new about the new age. Rav Shaul in Galatians 5, he addressed it. It was going on in all the cities, the Roman world, full of idolatry, full of immorality, full of all these fertility cults and, you know, all that, all the perversion that we have today. Nothing new under sun, under the sun. Now the deeds of the flesh are clear and he listened and he may have been thinking about our ancestors in the wilderness. Uh, you can look at 1 Corinthians, I think it's 10 also, he recounts it. What is it? Sexual immorality, impurity, indecency, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you just as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit God's kingdom. Sounds a lot like the children of Israel in the wilderness, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And then he goes on, verse 22. But, but, thank you for that word. The fruit of the Ruach is what? Love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. Now those who belong to Messiah have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Ruach, let us walk by the Ruach. When we look at the, I'm going to wrap up here a moment. When we look at the story of the wilderness, over and over, one consistent theme comes through is that they did not believe the word of God. Even though they saw the miracles, they saw God's goodness. And instead, they chose to believe the enemy's lies. From the insecurities and jealousies to outright rebellion, whether it's the 12 uh, spies, whether it's Korah, whether it's here in this story today. And we see that over and over. They failed to enter because of his, of their rebellion, unbelief. Another way of saying it is they believed lies about God. They didn't believe that he was able to accomplish what he said. They lacked faith. And we can do the same thing, right? We can act and respond out of unbelief, out of fear, out of rebellion, out of disobedience, out of jealousy, out of bitterness, out of offense, all those things that we read about. So let us not read those things and go, wow, those people, it, didn't they get it? They saw those great things that God did, but we're just like them. We are also prone to wander, aren't we? We're also prone to fall into those same things, even though we have seen God's goodness in our lives, haven't we? We've all seen God's love, God's mercy, and yet sometimes we choose to believe the enemy's lies and not who God says we are. God called Israel his firstborn son back in Exodus 4. He stamped them with an identity out of his love and covenant faithfulness. And they, yet they chose to live and act and behave like orphans, not sons. We can do the same thing. So the spirit of a, of a cult and the spirit that wants to pull us into those things is alive and well in the world today. It is one of the favorite tools of the enemy. But let's let us not fall into believing the enemy's lies. You know, what we believe is reflected in our behavior, not what we say we believe. It's our behavior. And they had said, right, early on, they said, we will believe and obey everything the Lord says. Didn't they make that declaration? Yeah. But what happened? They didn't follow through. They didn't believe it because they didn't live it. We can fall into that same trap. We can believe the enemy's lies that says, nah, God can't really do that. Nah, God doesn't really love you. Nah, you're not able uh, to do those things, right? But we can say, yes, I am a child of the king. I am a son, a daughter of the Most High God. I can do all things through Messiah who strengthens me, and I believe it because God said it, and that settles it. Amen? Now let's all stand. And you might be here today, and you might be stuck. You might be stuck in not really being able to grasp this idea of God's love, of God's goodness. Maybe you're stuck in the idea that I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. I've made so many mistakes. God could never love me like he loves other people. I can never do things that other people do. 
If that's you or believe any of those kind of lies, I want to encourage you today to acknowledge and, and, and say, that is a lie. I'm not going to accept that any longer. That this day on this Shabbat, I'm going to, I'm going to confess that I believe that lie and it's not from God because God says that I am his son, that I am his daughter, that he loves me and accepts me just as I am. So I want to encourage you, if that's you, to just believe in that and pray with me as I pray that right now. Abba, we have all at times believed the lies of the enemy. Whether it's about your love, that that I'm not good enough. Whether it's about you, that you're a harsh God and that I can never measure up to your standard. Whether it's about other people that they just don't love me, they don't care about me. Whatever that lie may be, God, right now, I just confess to you that I believe those lies. That those lies are from the enemy. They're not from you. I ask you to forgive me for believing lies. And I forgive myself for belittling myself for thinking of myself as less than who you say I am. And I receive the truth that says I am beloved. I am loved. I am whole. I am accepted. I am redeemed. I am yours. That you receive me and accept me just the way I am. That I am a work in progress. And that by your grace, you will help me on that path. But that your love and the issue of your love and acceptance of me is a settled issue at this moment. And I thank you for that. Thank you, God, that you have given us these examples and lessons so that we don't say, oh, look at them, but that we look at ourselves and know that we too can easily perish in the wilderness. So thank you, God, that we can also know that by believing your truth, we can walk in the fullness of your blessings and love. In Yeshua's name, amen. Our foundation is built on solid rock. Yeshua, the rock of our salvation on Solace Radio. It can be controversial. So those of you who are angry with me, be polite, sit in your seats, wait till afterwards, then you walk out angry and mad. That's, that they are, or come to me. But it is something upon my heart, very, very, very close to my heart. In the 60s and the 70s, some of you might remember it started actually in California, what we call the Yeshua movement. Actually, in English, we said it was the Jesus movement. And it started over uh, in Costa Mesa there with uh, Chuck Smith. And the whole, whole movement in this country it was on Time magazine, the Jesus movement. And toward the ends of that first wave, it did happen again in the 90s with a, an outpouring of God's spirit for the Russian 
Jewish people as well, they got saved. But in the late 60s, early 70s, many, many people throughout the country and the world were becoming believers in Messiah. Jewish people, we got in the tail end. And a lot of people like myself became believers late 60s, early 70s. And so we were all coming to faith and we were all excited about the Lord. But we had a problem. We all came to faith. And then what? Now what do we do? Where do we go? Where do we go for teaching? Well, we went to the only place you're supposed to go to. We went to the Bible, preaching, Bible churches to hear the word of God being taught. And so we sat in churches, many of us, and we started to grow spiritually. But as we were growing spiritually, we were losing our Jewish identity and our Jewish heritage. And sometimes we get to the churches and... We didn't feel comfortable. I just got a call today from an Orthodox, this week, from an Orthodox Jewish woman from South Africa. And Jewish girl, she got saved about a year or two ago. And she was telling me that she'd been to churches and she felt sort of like the token Jewish person. She didn't feel comfortable. But we still had to have the word of God being taught to us. A lot of times Jewish people get saved and go back to the synagogue. Listen, I love my people. The synagogue doesn't teach the Bible. The synagogue is not familiar with the word of God. So we felt uncomfortable in churches. Then when we were sitting there trying to hear the word of God being taught, we heard sometimes from the pulpit that Jewish people have big noses. And I'd look and say, why do you say that? I don't know. Anyway, but uh, yeah, we'd hear jokes. Yeah, we had all the money. We started squirming. We didn't feel comfortable. And behind us, there usually was across the, probably the size that Yeshua died on. And so we sat there not feeling very, very comfortable. And we heard bad jokes. And so we felt uncomfortable sometimes in the church. And sometimes too many of us got saved and joined a church. And the church felt uncomfortable with us. So we went through a difficult time. It's like I said, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was misunderstandings, difficulties. We'd hear things like, you once were a Jew, and now you are, quote, a Christian. It's very hard for a Jewish person. Because that's sort of like saying to a uh, black person, you once were black, but now you're saved, so now you're white, or vice versa. Or to a woman, well, before you were saved, you're a woman, but now you're a man. That, that's how absurd it is. So we'd hear all that, and we just didn't feel comfortable. Now, please don't get me wrong. The church is where the word of God is being taught, and we need that. But there was misunderstandings between Jewish identity and how, how we felt how they made us feel. So we saw a movement develop in the late 60s, early 70s for Messianic congregations, Messianic Jewish congregations. Now, please also understand that this started for us in our generation, late 60s, early 70s, actually when I became a believer in 1972, I think there was three Messianic congregations in the United States. There was three. I think there was Philadelphia, Chicago, and Cincinnati. And then one sprang up in L.A. It was about maybe three or four in the whole United States. Now, some of you think oh, that was a new phenomenon then, but it really wasn't because in the 19th century, the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were many Messianic congregations, truly Messianic congregations throughout Europe and the United States. There were Messianic congregations, but, of course, the Holocaust came and wiped them all out. And so they were destroyed. And so it was re restarted in the 70s. So... I want to make a case today why we have Messianic congregations, why you're here on a Saturday morning, why we do have Messianic congregations. So if you have your outline, what I'd like you to do is fill in fill in something as we just go along 
I want you to uh, realize that Messianic congregations, and today I'm making a case why we have Messianic congregations. They're not for everybody, but they are biblical. And uh, Messianic congregations are necessary and designed by God, I believe. It's just my belief. To allow Jewish believers to express their faith in a Jewish context. Now, again, I will go back to the late 60s, early 70s, when some of the Messianic groups, individuals started forming Messianic congregations. And we'd form a Messianic congregation. And my wife was part of one of the first ones. And actually, she was part of the first independent Messianic congregation in the United States. There was one in Philly and there was one in Chicago, but they were supported by Christian groups. Fran was part of the first congregation, Beth Messiah in Cincinnati, that only supported themselves. That was the, the first of the Messianic congregations. But it was interesting because when we decided to do this and start the Messianic congregations, we got opposition from, anybody? Churches, the believers, other churches. They said, you're not good. You're breaking, de- you're building up the middle wall of partition. You're breaking away from the body of believers. You're causing all kinds of trouble. We don't want you to do that. Actually, in those early days, we called ourselves Hebrew, quote, I'm sorry, Hebrew slash Christian. We were Hebrew Christians. I'm thrilled to be able to say that. And the people in the church said, no, no, you're not. We don't want any hyphenated believers. You know, Hebrew hyphenate Christian. We don't want that. You're all Christian. He said, but I'm Jewish. He said, no, no, you were. He said, there was a lot of difficulties, even with a body of believers. And they didn't like us forming Messianic congregations, saying we're being uh, leaving them off and breaking away. But I believe God continued to have the movement spread. And we are not making ourselves separate. In fact, I speak in churches all the time, and they say, what are your messianic congregations like? I said, come, see, come on a Saturday morning. Everywhere I speak, I always tell them, come on a Saturday morning. Sometimes I take you, and we go dancing in their churches on Sunday morning, and I preach, and we have messianic music. So we're part of the body of Messiah, of Jewish and Gentile people that believe, but we want to maintain our culture, our identity, and who God made us to be. Now, sometimes one of the objections is, no, 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 no culture. Forget that. We are believers, quote, Christian, and there is no culture. That is stupid. There's always a culture. Everybody has their own culture and their own traditions. So we said we'd like to maintain our own culture and our identity. And so they said, no, but we did it anyway. And God, I think, blessed. So now that we have in America, we might have two, three hundred messianic groups or congregations meeting. In Israel, there's about 200 home groups or fellowships going. So God has spread. And so, fill it in. This is what I believe today, is messianic congregations are necessary, designed by God to allow Jewish believers to continue, maintain, not divide, express their faith in a Jewish manner. So, follow along with me. First thing I want to say, very, very important, God's design... God's design, I truly believe, is for local, quote, congregations or churches. You say, which one, messianic or not? Yes, that's what I believe. God's design is for local congregations. Now, you have to understand, I grew up, I'm a baby boomer. Um, I don't know if I should be embarrassed to say that or not, but I am a baby boomer. The baby boomers, we had some problems. We are, We don't like commitment. We don't like to be stuck. We don't want to have responsibility. We don't want to have any accountability. We want to come and go as we want. Don't tell me I have to be bound to a congregation. It's God's design, I believe, for the local congregation. I, You know how strong I am when believers should be praying, reading. Listen carefully. 
If you are not part of a, quote, church or messianic group, I don't believe you're in the will of God. I believe you should be bound to it. And you say, ah, you say no, there's nowhere in the Bible that says you've got a sign. You're right. There isn't. But there's an idea and a concept in the Bible that you should be committed to a local body. You need to be accountable to a body. Body needs to be accountable to you. It is a biblical concept. So follow along with me. If we can, I'll try to make a case. God's design is for local congregations. That's what God wants us to do. Our generation said, no, we don't like the commitment, but we should be. And uh, I want you to see God's plan. Follow along with me in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Simon Peter answered Yeshua. It's the big question Yeshua said to him. Actually, I'll throw it in quickly. If you come with me to Israel, I'll show you where Yeshua said to them, who do men say that I am? We'll be standing there at the rock uh, right under Mount Hermon. It's really fun. But anyway, I can't make an advertisement. You, he said, who do people say I am? Simon says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Yeshua said to him, yes, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. When you become believers and you think you've accepted the Lord because your eyes... God saved you. He revealed himself to you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father is in heaven. He spoke that to your heart and you accepted me. And Yeshua says, I also say that you are Peter. And we're not going to get into this interpretation here. And upon this rock, we're not going to get into who the rock is. I have my own opinions, but I will build my, some of your verse, your Bible say church. It means congregation, same thing. Congregation, group, called out one, temple, assembly. It's all the same. So Yeshua says something very interesting there. Because the body of Messiah, the local church, did not form yet. And Yeshua says, I will build, make my congregation, my body. You know, I divide the world into two groups of people. There's the big bubble on the left, no political things there. And there's the big bubble on the right, the bubble of believers on the right. I just feel more comfortable making, anyway, but anyway. So, and God says, I'm going to form that. Wasn't formed yet. In the book of John, Yeshua says, I'm leaving all of you to the disciples, chapter 14. But I will send the Holy Spirit. John chapter 15, Yeshua says, I'm going, but I will send the Holy Spirit. Chapter six, uh, 14, 15, 16, Yeshua says, I'm going, but I will send the Holy Spirit. If you're getting a feel, what Yeshua is trying to tell us is something's going to happen that hasn't happened in the Old Covenant. He says, I'm going to do something. I will, I will, I will. You get to Acts chapter 1. The disciples say to each other, is it now? Kingdom? Now? He says, no. I will. What you will? What's happening? The Spirit's going to come and do something new. That's what he's saying. Follow along. In the book of Acts, before we even get to it, Acts, it's not here yet. So you shouldn't be at Acts 8 yet. Good. Stay there. Acts chapter 2. Yeshua kept on saying, I will, I will, I will, all those times. Acts chapter 2, he did. Spirit came, came upon the believers for the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. Spirit came, and if you can say, picture, here's the whole world of everybody in the left. In Acts chapter 2, Yeshua pulled out 3,000 people and formed the bubble on the right. That's what we call the body, the kehillah the uh, temple, the congregation, the, quote, church, the body of believers. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Shavuot, the Lord formed what we know, invisible body of all believers. Since then, 
Everyone today or since for the last 2,000 years who says, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe Yeshua died for me. I'd like to receive him as my Messiah and Savior. Soon as you do that, he takes you out of that bubble and places you into the bubble that he formed 2,000 years ago. It's an invisible bubble. It's a spiritual bubble, but it's there. That's what we call the congregation. That's what we call the body of Messiah. Acts chapter 2, 3,000 were added to it. Then it says, Acts chapter 3, many, many more were added to that bubble. It was growing. Acts chapter 4 says it grew to 5,000 men, many more. Then it says many more were added in chapter 4 and 5. Then it says priests and Pharisees and they're at... He's building his bubble. Remember Acts 16? I bottom, I will build my... That's what Yeshua is doing. And in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, that's where it became a reality. He formed what we call the invisible body of Messiah. Look with me, if you will. Uh, Acts chapter one, uh, 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution, somewhere in that uh, first century, a great persecution arose against the body of believers in Jerusalem. Invisible body? Yeah. But it was also a local expression. Shuva is a local expression, a visible expression of an invisible body throughout all the world. We're a mixture of that. We have Japanese here. We have Chinese here. Uh, I don't know how many. We have any, everybody else, wherever you're from. But that's what we are. And we are a visible picture on the earth, just like Frank and them on Sunday, are a visible picture on the earth of an invisible body concept that the Bible teaches. And and I believe God is saying that he wants us part, not just of the universal invisible body, but a local group. Whether you sign on the dotted line or not, you should be committed to a local body. I see that in, in the whole development of what Luke is doing in Acts chapter 8. And he says, uh, the persecution against the congregation in Jerusalem, they were all scattered. And uh, verse 5, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching the Messiah to them. Then in Samaria, new congregations sprung up. Go on, Acts chapter 9. So the congregation throughout all of Judea, congregation, congregations, all over started springing up. In the Galilee, more congregations. Samaria, more congregations being built up. Going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. It became known over all of Joppa. Many believed in the Lord. Joppa now had a Messianic congregation. Everywhere you go, there's Messianic congregations with spiritual leaders, Messianic rabbis. All over. And people became committed to those local groups. Didn't sign on the dotted line. So when I have you sign on the dotted line, don't get mad at me. You can always tell me God led you to another group after that. It's fine. You're not signing your life away. But we do have membership here at Shuva. You want to be part of this body? You know what you're saying to me? I want to be accountable to this body. And I want the body to be accountable to me. And I want to support this body. And I want to pray for this body. And I want to bring my family to this body. This is my Local family. We see it all over the Bible. It's a biblical concept. Acts 11 goes on. And so, and says, and then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen when he was killed, they made the way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jewish people alone, Jewish congregations all over. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks there also, preaching Then their Messianic congregation in Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Large numbers who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the congregation at Jerusalem. And they sent off Barnabas to Antioch in verse 26. And when he found, 
when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Actually, Barnabas brought Paul to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the congregation and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called believers in Antioch. Messianic congregations everywhere. Listen carefully. I do believe God's design is for believers to be committed to a local group. Baby boomers, myself, we resist that. We don't like that. Don't you tell me that. I want to come and go as I please. Larry, don't you tell me I belong at Shuv on Saturday morning. I love you, but you do. You belong in a place. You say, but I have a headache. You take an Excedrin and you come to service. You'll feel good. You're deathly ill, please stay home. We'll pray for you. This is where you belong. Or if you're a visitor, we love you. Make sure on Sunday morning you're where you belong in your home congregation. This is what the Bible, I think, teaches us. And verse, uh, where was I? Please help me. 26. Okay, good. And next one, Acts 13. Now there were at Antioch in the congregation that was there. There were prophets, teachers, Barnabas, and so on, all those. Verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit, we're not sure how he said it, said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. They were praying, and all of a sudden, when one of the prophets spoke out that Paul and Barnabas, you're not supposed to be in this congregation. You're supposed to go through Asia Minor and start other congregations, and that's what his work was. He started Messianic congregations. I feel blessed God has given me that opportunity in my life. 1974, I was able to go to Brooklyn, New York, and start a Messianic congregation there. 1979, I felt blessed by God. I went down to Dallas, and we started another Messianic congregation in Dallas in 79. 1983, I moved to the West Bank, New Jersey. We started a Messianic congregation there in New Jersey. Then we started a Messianic congregation in Connecticut and South uh, Jersey as well. And then people in 1996 said, would you move to California and start a Messianic congregation there? And I told them, no, never, not, not a way in the world. And so the next year we moved here and started Shuvi Israel. So God is always for It's God's design. I didn't say for necessarily Messianic, just to have local congregations. And we read, and it says, uh, Acts 14, after they preached the gospel to that city, they made and made many disciples. Then they turned to a city called uh, Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them through many tribulations, suffering. You're going to become believers. And when they appointed elders, see that's organization, folks. That's what he did. The great rabbi Saul started congregations, not just loose knit groups, elders and deacons and leadership and organization in every city. That's biblical. And he said, he formed all that. He says, while they appointed elders, many congregations and all the congregations and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed, Acts 15, when he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the congregations, Second Corinthians 11. Apart from such external things as suffering, he said, there is the daily pressure on me of all the congregations. He was responsible for the many different congregations. I've always been very big, as I told you, preaching, pray, and read. I have been short not telling you how important it is for you to be part of a local congregation. This is God's design. You have to, and you should be. Paul, Acts 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, through the agency of man, but through Yeshua, the apostle Paul. I think a tremendous, the rabbi, great, great, great figure in the word of God. And I do believe as you trace through the new covenant, you see that Yeshua's ministry was to be carried on through his apostles. The head of all the apostles would be Peter. And it was to be carried on through the next one who would be the rabbi Saul. And God developed through them 
his early ministry, as we see Luke made a very strong case in the book of Acts. And it says, uh, verse 2, Galatians uh, 1, 2, and the bread, all the brethren who are with me to the congregations of Galatia, many messianic congregations, Philippians 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Yeshua, to the saints in Messiah Yeshua who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. It is a biblical concept to have congregations. Listen, look up here. Messianic and non-messianic. You develop, you find out which one you like, you feel called to, and you join one. Now, I've heard people say, don't look for the perfect one and join it because you'll make it imperfect. Congregations are not perfect. You'll never find a perfect one. You find one that you feel comfortable with. Um, messianic congregations, I think it's designed by God. First thing I said, it's a biblical pattern that we should be part. Second, I want you to follow along with me uh, in your outlines. The foundations of the congregation. Again, another thought you should know. First, God's design is to form local congregations. And look up here. Messianic and not messianic. That's God's design. What is the foundation of all these congregations? Listen carefully. All the foundations for messianic and non-messianic are the same. Same foundation. Same foundation. We see three things that make the foundation. Follow along with me. In um, Acts chapter 4. He, Yeshua, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. Yeshua was rejected by our Jewish people. Rejected uh, the builders which became the chief cornerstone. The whole body of Messiah, when you build a building, you put the cornerstone. Everything goes around the cornerstone. Yeshua is the cornerstone of the body of believers. Messianic or non-messianic. And it says, and there is salvation in no one else. This is where it all begins. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way to be saved except through Yeshua. Not prayer, fasting, good deeds, keeping the law, keeping the Torah, keeping the Jewish traditions. It's all fine and dandy. It doesn't save anyone. Yeshua, chapter, um, first Corinthians chapter three, foundation. I haven't got to what it is yet, but pretty much you got an idea. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Rabbi Saul, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon that foundation. Each man must be careful how he builds, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is the Messiah Yeshua. Ephesians chapter 2, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the chief cornerstone. I believe all congregations, Messianic or not, have the same foundation. What is that foundation? First, it is Messiah Yeshua. He is the cornerstone. Everything is built around him. Now, listen carefully. This is very important. Everything in our congregations are built upon Yeshua and the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. They laid the foundation. We build upon what they laid. God spoke to the apostles and the prophets and laid the foundation of the body of Messiah. And I do believe all congregations have the same foundation. Messiah being the chief cornerstone, we build on the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. Someone says, well, do you read the Old Covenant? Of course we do. The Old Covenant teaches us about the nature of God. The Old Covenant teaches about my need for a Savior. The Old Covenant teaches me about sin. The foundation of us is what the apostles and prophets, though, laid down. Go on, follow along. The goals of the congregation. All congregations have the same goals. Do you know that? Frank on Sunday, us on Saturday, every other Messianic congregation in the world, every other biblical sound, Bible preaching church has the same, same goal. First, same foundation, same goals. What are the goals, actually? Is that what I have here? 
Goals? Uh, yeah, the goals of the congregation. This is the goals, I believe, of the congregation. It's only threefold. All have the same goals. First, our goal at Shuva and all other congregations is to glorify God. That's what we do. Glorify God. You can do it in different ways, but our purpose is to glorify Him. Lift Him up. Every Saturday morning when I pray, before I come here, I say, Lord, my words are not important. What is important is that you get all the honor and glory. The people see you today. I love, Ben and I are watching uh, this week, uh, the Ten Commandments. Last week was Ben-Hur. We can't do it in one shot, so, you know, we're getting older. So, this week we're doing the Ten Commandments. It's only, what, what a third night or so? Anyway, uh, when we see our eyes closed, we turn it off and say, that's it. Anyway, so, we're watching the Ten Commandments this week. And, and I love seeing Moses stand before God, and he said, Who am I that you would choose me? I was so moved this week hearing him just say that, which I've heard him say it a million times because I've seen it a million times. But Mo, who am I? I feel like saying, Moses, let me tell you who you were. You're a prince of Egypt. You're a leader of Egypt. You, were, you could have been the possible the next pharaoh. You are Charlton Heston. No, you are mighty Moses. Moses. I love it. Moses. He's a mighty, mighty figure. The great One of the greatest leaders of all time. And he's standing there before. Who am I? I am nothing. It hit me this week. I'm absolutely nothing. So my people say, what should I call you? Call me Larry, because that's who we are. I study the word so I can maybe teach you. We're all the same. We are nothing. It's all for his glory. That's why we're here, to glorify God. Second, what am I, a purpose or goal here? I have no idea. Uh, wrong goals. Second goal. Second goal is not just to glorify God. It's to edify the believers. You need edification. Believers need encouragement, edification, teaching of the word of God. You need to be edified. We have three purposes. One is to glorify God. Second is to build up, encourage, edify the believers. Listen carefully to what I said, just so you're not confused. We are a second purpose, second goal, is to build up, edify, encourage, listen to who? The bubble on the right. That's what we're supposed to do. And then there's a third one. The third one is to reach out. And preach the good news to the bubble on the left. I find no other goals for us other than glorifying God, building up my fellow believers, and reaching out to loved ones and lost who do not know Messiah. That are, those are your goals, messianic or not. What is the purpose of Shuva and all other messianic, all congregations? Fill it in. What am I on here? I'm on D, the purpose of the congregation. Really, let me give you it quickly. The purpose is first, is your purpose, messianic or not. Our purpose here is to worship God this morning. That's what our purpose is. We're to worship God. All congregations, messianic or not. Second purpose is for instruction. Listen carefully. We are to instruct in the Bible. I once candidated for a congregation, and they asked me this question. Will you teach the Talmud? And I go, no. Why not? We want to learn the Talmud. Listen, I don't want to learn the Talmud. It's too hard. It's too confusing. And it'll take away my time from the Bible. Our instructions primarily at Shuvah is in the Word of God. You want to read other books? Fine. You're a reader? Fine. Make sure you read the books after you read the Word of God. We are to instruct that is our, one of our major purposes, to worship God. And second, instruct each other in the Bible. That's where you're going to find a Bible-preaching congregation. Third, your purpose is to have discipleship, building up fellow believers. You've first become a believer. 
I don't care what your age is. You are a baby. You know nothing when you first become a believer. You've entered into a new relationship, a new foundation, a new congregation. You might know the world, but you don't know the Bible. You are a baby and you need to grow And just like a baby desires milk, you need to grow in every person. And that's sometimes we make a mistake. We get a person saved, a doctor, a lawyer, someone who's been big in a public figure, and they become a believer and they're 40 or 50 years old, and we think they're there already. They're not. Listen, you know what they are? Everyone, what are they? Babies. They're in the world, but they're just children. They need discipleship. They need to grow. Third, Fourth, you need fellowship with other believers. No believer is an island. You can't be alone. You gotta have other believers. You gotta meet with body. You gotta meet with Habarah groups. And finally, the last purpose is for outreach. Follow along, fill in your outlines. So God's design, I believe, is for local congregations. I gave you the purposes and the goals. Second, I want you to fill this in. God's desire, I believe. God has a desire. Of course, this is my belief. People might oppose me. God's desire is for messianic congregations. I think that is God's, des- not only his design to have congregations, his desire is to have messianic Jewish congregations. Now, people will resist me on that. Let me tell you why, and you can fill this in. The desire is for messianic congregations. First, why do we have messianic congregations? Fill this in. To maintain a biblical, godly remnant. Let me explain. Most people don't know what the word remnant means. God began the Jewish nation with a man by the name of Abraham. And God, from Abraham, he had a number of children, but the two major ones we focus on are Ishmael and Isaac. And through God says, I'm going to fill my purposes and my plans through Isaac. And Isaac had two children. And God said, I'm going to fill my purposes and plans through Jacob. God is not saying the Jewish people are better, but God has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, which forms the nation of Israel. And God says, it's through this nation I'm going to do something amazing. I am choosing these people, not because they're better, not because they had more, not because they're godly or spiritual, because of God's sovereign choice. Remember, we know in this congregation what sovereignty means. Everyone, sovereignty means God does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, without checking with us. That's sovereignty. God formed the nation of Israel for a purpose. And everyone says, here's your purpose, is for Israel. First is to bring forth the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the nation of Israel. Why did God form the Jewish people? To bring forth the prophets of old. Why did God bring forth the Jewish people? To bring forth the Bible. Why did God form this nation? To bring forth the Messiah. That's why God's purpose and plan has nothing to do with anyone being better or not. God had a purpose and plan for these people. God also formed these people to be a visible witness and testimony in the world. So the whole world would see this people and say, oh, there's a God. There's a God who's faithful to his promises, who promised to preserve a people, to bring them along no matter who rises up. As long as there's a people of Israel, God says, you tell the world there's a real God. Now, this group of people had a purpose. The purpose was to tell the world about God. Now, listen carefully. This whole extra bubble, forget my other two, whole bubble of Israel was supposed to tell the world about God. This whole bubble of Israel did not do it. Who did it? A small group in that bubble. I hope I, am I confusing everyone? Okay. The bubble of Israel was supposed to be God's testimony. But instead of that whole bubble doing it, It just became part of a small group within that bubble called the remnant. 
The remnant is the Jewish people that believed in God. It's always been that way. And God formed the nation of Israel. Look with me. I'll get to what I'm trying to do it. God began in Genesis 12, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You're going to be a blessing throughout all the world. Those who bless you and your people, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you and your people, I'm going to curse. God made a promise. Genesis 15. And he took Abraham outside and said, look up to the heavens, Abraham. I know you have no children. Count the stars if you can count them. And God says, that's how many children are going to come from you. And it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham saying to your descendants, I will give the land. And he specifies the land. The land, as we're going to find out next week, belongs to the Jewish people. Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and your people, you and your people, you and your descendants after you, and their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will give to you, your descendants after you, the land of your sojournings. I have blessings for you. All the land of Canaan, not Palestine, never walk up to me and never walk up to me and call it Palestine. That's an anti-Semitic, hateful term. For an everlasting possession. Verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout all their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. We had a joyful circumcision this week. At least for us. Not for little, not for little Henry. <laughs> it wasn't too joyful for him. I'm sure he'll never tell me about it. But uh, it's okay. And in August, I'll have two more little circumcisions, baby A and baby B. That's my twins on the way. But anyway, they will not have a happy day. We will rejoice on that. Day. Well, we'll feel a little sad at first, but then we'll have a happy day. But anyway, and God says, Jeremiah 31, this, this people, the nation of Israel, again, look up here, this nation that was supposed to fulfill the purpose of God, but which, who did it? The small group of Jewish believers in that big group. The Jewish believers. You know, when Jewish people today, my community, all around the world, Jewish people look at me and they say to me, you're not Jewish. They don't like that I believe in Yeshua. Please get, don't get me wrong. I am the real Jew. I am a part of the remnant. I'm a part of the visible witness of God. Now, he's preserving his people around the world. But it's the remnant there that tells of the faithfulness of God. Jewish believers. Look what Jeremiah says. You can't get rid of the Jewish people. Thus says the Lord, although Arnold Fruchtenbaum does a message on how to get rid of the Jews, and he preaches on this passage. This is how you get rid of us. The Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for the light by night, he stirs up the sea so the waves roar and the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, sun, moon, stars, if you can get rid of that, declares the Lord, if this fixed order departs from me, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation. So if you want to get rid of the Jewish people, all you have to do, send up a nuclear bomb, destroy the sun, destroy the moon, destroy, destroy all the stars. If you can do that, then you can get rid of Israel. You can't. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, you can't. Foundations of the earth, we can't even get to the bottom of the sea. Searched out below, then I will also cast up all the offspring of Israel. You can't get rid of the Jewish people. They are a visible remnant. Romans 11.1. 1. Great rabbi says, I say then, has God rejected his people? No, not at all. God hasn't rejected his people because I still am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected his people. And then he gives you a story about Elijah. And Elijah's saying in verse 3, Lord, you've, you, they've killed all the prophets. They've torn down the altars, and I'm alone. I'm left. And they're seeking my life. What is the divine response to him? God says, I've kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Listen carefully, just so you know. In Israel, there were more than 7,000 Jewish people. How big was the remnant then? Anybody? 7,000. 
in Israel. There was at least 7,000 that have not bowed and won. Thanks, Elijah. Good. All right, that's the remnant. In the same way, there has also come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice today. God has still preserved our people, a remnant. And this is what I'm trying to say with this point. God allows Messianic congregations so we can still remain a part of that remnant, a visible witness to God. I like to feel that if you're Jewish and you join a church and you call yourselves a Christian and you wear a cross and you start talking about Christ and you forget who God made you to be, you may be fighting against God's purposes for you. Now, let me tell you, sometimes it's easier to do that. You blend in easier. You don't want to stick out. But God has called Jewish people not to be divisive, not to be separate, but to maintain that remnant who God made you to be. A lot of times Jewish people say, but I wasn't raised with Jewishness. I said, that's fine. Now God has revealed it to you. So study about your background. Study about who you are. You are part of the remnant. That's why we have Messianic congregations to maintain that remnant and that Jewish lifestyle. Follow along. B, why do we have Messianic congregations? To maintain a Jewish culture, lifestyle, and identity. People don't like that. They say, stop with the Jewish culture. We don't need it. I said, oh. I, I, you know, when people say, stop with the Jewish culture, lifestyle, and identity, I said, oh. And I don't say this mean. So you want me to become a Gentile? Yeah, become like me. Become a normal person. Why do you have to be like a Jew? I don't know. Maybe he made me that way. I don't know. I'm not saying bad or good. There's Gentiles, there's Jews. The important thing is we believe in Messiah. But God wants us to maintain our culture, our identity, our lifestyle. Let me explain. Follow along in there if you fill it in. To maintain that, the question is, when I start talking with Messianic Jews and Gentiles all over, they say, well, how do you maintain your Jewish culture, lifestyle, and identity? Listen carefully. They tell me, keep the Torah. I go, wait a second. You go to the Jewish community right now, and you ask them what the Torah is, they will not know what you're talking about. Jewish people do not know what the word Torah means. Well, the rabbis do. Of course the rabbis do. The rabbis do not know what the Torah is. Other people say, I know what it means to be Jewish. Keep the law. I said, you can't keep the law. It's not possible to keep the law. You don't go to Israel three times a year. You don't inspect your clothes to see if you're mixing wool and cotton. You can't keep the law. It's impossible. Every one of you who want to keep the law, you can't. You go, well, I want to pick and choose. Fine, pick and choose what you want. But you can't keep the law. Listen carefully. And this is where a lot of people mess up. The law was a constitution given to a people for a time on how to live. The law had civil laws in there. They had agricultural laws in there. They had ceremonial laws in there. Their constitution was so designed for a people for a time, period. So people say we keep the law. You can't keep the law. You can't keep a, uh, just, you can't even keep, a, keep ten commandments. So people say, well, what does it mean to be Jewish? Can I keep the Torah? Can I keep the law? Yeah, if you want, but that's not really what we're talking about. Other Jewish people say, well, maybe I should keep the Talmud. The Jewish people don't know what's in the Talmud. Our Jewish people don't know that. That's not what it necessarily means to be Jewish, to keep the Torah, to keep the law, to keep, uh, to keep the Talmud. Oh, they tell me, oh, I know what it means to be Jewish. Keep kosher. Keep kosher and you're a Jew. I said, I will show you 85, 95, 95% of my people that do not keep kosher. Because Jewish people don't keep kosher. Well, rabbis do. Yeah, of course. Orthodox. Yeah, they do. I'm not saying it's bad to keep kosher. My wife's been trying to get me to keep kosher for 38 years. 
She, she keeps losing. She gets me to think about it. It's not wrong. It's good. You're probably healthier. But does that mean to be Jewish? No, it doesn't mean. My next door neighbors for many years in New Jersey, the fines, you go over their house. We have great meals with them. Shrimp flying all over the place. <laughs> and she had special ribs. I said, oh, these kosher goods, huh? She said, I got them at the Chinese store and I doctored them up. Jewish people don't keep kosher. It's not what it means to be Jewish. No, you might feel good. You see, we in this movement, Jews and Gentiles, we think the way to be Jewish is follow the Orthodox. If we follow the Orthodox, rabbis will be Jewish. Who says they have to tell me? We're messianic. I don't have to identify with a group of people that deny Messiah, that deny who I am. So what does it mean to be Jewish? I don't know. It's tough. It really, that's a vague question. I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions here. First, let me give you a couple of suggestions. What it means, how, to make, how I maintain my culture and identity. You can disagree with me. I don't care, but I'm up here and you're down there. So here we go. First, I think it's a special environment. What do I mean? This building that we, we meet, okay, in a church. But you go outside, it doesn't look like a church. Looks like a nice building. Jewish people come in here and feel comfortable. Symbols. Jewish people identify with symbols. They, they like this one over here. Jewish people feel comfortable with this symbol. You know, they do. They like it. They like it. Hello. Thank you. Oh, now I have to do it. It's not, it's not, it's not Independence Day yet. I'm just. I don't like those flag waving people. But anyway, next week. I, that was a foretaste. I did that on purpose. Anyway. Oh, go vault. See, that's Jewish. Go vault. Anyway. Symbols. Symbols. Menorahs. Menorahs. That's, that's Jewish. Listen, let, let me tell you what else is Jewish. The way you speak. The way you speak. Terminology. That is Jewish. You're part of a messianic congregation. I've been trying to tell you for years. You don't have to use the word Christ. Isn't that his name? No. His parents were not Joseph and Mary Christ. He had no last name. He was Yeshua ben David, ben Yosef. Yeshua, son of Joseph, Joseph, and son of David. Terminology is very, very important. Speak about the Messiah. Jews be like, oh, Messiah, that's good. Speak about Yeshua. Speak about your congregation. Speak about your synagogue. We are a messianic synagogue. Terminology is a big thing. Environment makes Jewish people. Jewish people come in here, they they might hear some Hebrew, they see Jewish symbols. Second thing, what does it mean, I think? Certain things are involved with maintaining that culture. Worship. Our worship is different than you're going to see here on Sunday morning. It's different than the churches. I didn't say it's better, I said it's different. We have messianic music. We do the Shema. I once met with a rabbi, not a rabbi, I'm sorry, met with a pastor. And the pastor said to me, so tell me, what do you do different in your congregation that we don't do? So I don't know. Oh, I said, oh, every week we sing the Shema. He goes, what's that? I said, Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. And the pastor looked at me and goes, that's beautiful. He says, we could do that. I said, yes, you could, but you won't. He goes, oh, yeah, you're right. He could, but he doesn't. Because Messianic congregations are different in their worship, their music, their liturgy. You hear Hebrew here. Hebrew is a binding tie with Jewish people. It's the mother language. That's what holds our people together. What does it mean to be Jewish? That's vague. I'm just throwing out my opinions. I don't think you keep kosher that identifies with Jewish people because they don't. I do think our worship, doing the Shema, hearing Hebrew, following along another one. I said environment, worship, holidays. This is Jewish, the holidays. 
Jewish people do not want to come on Sunday morning to worship. That's not what they do. They come on Shabbat. They feel comfortable coming on Shabbat. They feel comfortable coming to Passover. They feel comfortable with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Purim. They enjoy the Jewish holidays. That's who they are. That identifies with our Jewish people, the different Jewish holidays. Some people have said to me, why do you keep the Jewish holidays? Listen carefully. You can't keep the Jewish holidays like God told Moses. We can't do it. We just can't. It's not possible. So we do the best we can in observing. And people say, well, why? Why do you do them? I get, you can write them down a couple of reasons. One, because I'm Jewish and I was raised with the Jewish holiday. It's part of my culture. That's okay. Culture is not bad if it's not, bibli- if it's not anti-biblical. I keep it because I was raised with it. Second, why do I keep these holidays? Because God gave them to my people. In the Old Covenant, they were required. And you were cursed if you didn't. Today, we have freedom. And we have maybe a responsibility to our people. The reason I keep the holidays, they speak of the Messiah. What a beautiful thing. The Jewish holidays speak of Messiah. And fourth, they give me an opportunity to share my faith as well. We keep the Jewish holidays and find special events. This is what it means to be Jewish to me. What do you mean? We have bar mitzvahs. We have bat mitzvahs. You know, I got a card once, a blue card, and the blue card said, enough with the bar mitzvahs. Too many. Of course, they didn't sign it, so I don't know which one of you said that. Anyway. And they said, too many bar and bat mitzvahs. One more and I'm out of here. So I don't know when they left or if they stayed or not. But this is who we are because we speak to our people through special events. We have special Jewish weddings, Jewish funerals. That's what we do. That's what it means to maintain our identity and our culture and who we are. We have the special holidays coming up. Yom Hatzma'ot, Israel Independence. Yom HaShoah, Memory of the Holocaust. Fill it in. See, God's design. So we can preserve a meaningful message to our people. Let me explain. Look at me in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free, Rabbi Saul said, I'm free from everybody, because if the Son shall make you free, you will be free. I've made myself a slave to everybody. Though he was free, he wanted to be a slave to everybody for the purpose of winning everybody. My heart's desire, my prayer, is to win Jewish people and Gentile people to put their trust in Messiah, because that's the end all. If I can get my mom and dad, my sister, and all of you to accept Yeshua, you know what I say? Dayenu. That's what I say. When I get all my people in this world to accept Yeshua, I'm out of a job, Messiah comes back, and we end in the eternal state. That's what great. It's Dayenu. I want everyone to be saved. Look what it says. So that I might win them all. To the Jews, I'm going to become like a Jewish person. I'm going to identify, he means. I'm going to do Jewish things to identify with them. I'm not going to be a hypocrite, but I'm going to try to relate to them. And he says, uh, I'm free. Yeah. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win them. To those who are under the law, I love this phrase, listen carefully. Those who are under the law, I became like under the law, though myself I'm not bound to or under the law. I would look that way. I would look like they do, but I'm not bound to that law, though I would observe it. Uh, they're not, okay. So that I might win those under the law. Listen carefully. The churches have tried to reach our people. Well-meaning, good churches, good churches. But they have failed. They've re- reached Jewish people. They do. They don't identify with Jewish people. They don't understand what it means to be Jewish. Which makes sense then that God would raise up a Messianic congregation that would relate. Now you say, I'm a Gentile and I don't relate to you, Larry. And I said, I understand. I love you. So come here on Sunday and relate to those people. Because we're part of the body. Churches do not attract Jewish people as a whole. 
Unsaved Jewish people don't relate to them. They come here. We, we offer Jewish people an alternative. We offer them a challenge. Listen, Jewish people always come here who are non-believers all the time. A lot of times people say, well, if you don't get my mom or dad here, they'll see you could be Jewish and you could believe in Yeshua, Jesus, but you'll never get them here. I said, of course they'll come. They go, no, they'll never come. I said, they will come. Go, How do you know? I said, because they come to meet the cult leader. That's me. They come. They meet the, they, they come. They'll come for Rosh Hashanah. They'll come for Purim. They'll come for Hanukkah. They'll come for the Passover. Jewish people come here all the time. I've had presidents of the synagogue come here. Cancer's wives come here. People always come. We build it, you know, they say build it, they will come. It's true. They come to Messianic congregations. I said we have had rabbis, husbands, wives, families of all kinds. My father, Orthodox Jewish man, he came to the congregation. My next door neighbors, the finds a Jewish couple. They came to the congregation. Esther back in Jersey, she came. The reason I say Esther because she came on Purim. Jewish people will always come to the congregation for one reason or another. And we have a message for them. They come because we have an alternative for family and friends. You want your family and friends to come and hear the message? You bring them here. I love telling this one story. couple back in New Jersey, I think one of the two, they were going to get married. And I don't know if it was the guy or the girl. One was a Jewish believer. The other was not. And they said, I want you, the Jewish person said, I want you to meet my family. I said, sure. I'd love to meet your family. They go, no, no, you don't know my family. You're going to be in for a rough time. I said, it's okay. I, I enjoy that. You know, I'm a little sick. But, I, you know, I, I said, I'll, I, I'll enjoy going to your family. They said, no, no, no. They're going to give you a real hard time. I said, it's okay. So I remember going to the family. The couple was there. I walked in the door, and the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, the brothers, the sisters, the parents, the grand everyone was there. It was a big group, and they were hissing. They were not happy with me. I was the devil himself. And I walked in, and they some of them looked at me. Some were polite. Others wouldn't even look at me. And I sat down there with them for a few hours and telling them how I am Jewish and how we have Shabbat and how we worship our Messiah, and how we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how we observe the Jewish holidays, and how we have barn bat mitzvahs, and we do all these Jewish things. And so I do remember at the end of that time, the head of the, who I was speaking at that time, looked at this couple that were believers, and they were not, and they looked at them, and they pointed to me, and they said, we don't like him, but if you're going to go anywhere, go to his congregation. <laughs> Because they saw I maintained my culture, my identity, and that I had a message for my people. And they enjoyed that. They wanted there. We have a meaningful message of atonement. We present atonement in the Bible. We present the Messiah from the Bible. Look at me quickly, okay? No, Ben doesn't like when I say quickly. Okay. So, look at me, D. We desire congregations to help Gentiles understand and reach our people. We do this, listen carefully, our Messianic congregation. We want and need Gentiles in our congregation. We're a Messianic congregation for Jews and Gentiles. Listen carefully. But we are focused. We are called. This little local congregation in the big, big, vast congregations of the world, God wants us to be focused to reach our group of Jewish people. Not all Jewish people, because we're going to have struggles with the Orthodox. But Gentiles, you have a part in this congregation. You have an important place here. It's your attitude that counts. Follow along, Ephesians 2. Therefore, 
rabbi's writing. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who were the Gentiles in the flesh, who are the so-called uncircumcision by the Jewish people, the circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were once separated from the Messiah. You were outside. Now you're inside. You're outside the Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now you've been brought in. But now in Messiah, you who formerly were far, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. But if some of the branches, Jewish people, were broken off, and you are wild olive, non-Jewish people, you were grafted in among them, you became partakers of the rich root of the olive. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. It's the attitude that counts from non-Jewish people. When, I, when Gentiles come in here and say, I love the Jewish people. We're not asking you to be Jewish. Uh, please, I don't like that. We call you wannabes. Gentiles, you don't have to be Jewish. God made you Gentile. You should be happy with that. God made us Jews. You should be happy with that. The important thing is that you believe in Messiah. We work together, focused on a group of people. The attitude is what counts. But I know many Gentiles. Uh, a friend of ours goes to Biola, this uh, girl, and she wears a Jewish star. She's not hiding the fact. She's not saying she's Jewish. She says, I love the Jewish people. I'm committed to the Jewish people. When you talk about that and you talk about your Messiah being Jewish and your God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you provoke Jewish people to a godly jealousy. We want and need Gentiles that love our people and don't try to change us. You're welcome. You have an important part here. Gentiles learn the roots of their faith. Gentiles don't know when they take the Lord's Supper, they're taking the Passover. The Word of God is taught here. You understand we have you so you can better understand our people and relate to our people. You oppose anti-Semitism. You relate better to our people. So we see that we have Messianic congregations to help Gentiles understand our people. And last, write this down. God's delight. What does God want from us? He wants a biblical, balanced Messianic congregation. Two things under that. One, the congregations that we form, us, should be bible Centered, that's a given, isn't it? We should be Bible-centered. But listen, I know not all Messianic congregations are Bible-centered. I know that. Some are prayer book-centered. Some are Jewish tradition-centered. Some are rabbinic-centered. Some are kosher-centered. We have to be Bible-centered. That's what God wants us to be. We should be centered in the Word of God. I've heard of Messianic congregations that have Jewish holidays that never mention Yeshua. That's not us. We are Messiah-centered. Colossians 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, having attained all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the knowledge of God's mystery, that is Messiah himself. We are Bible-centered. So that in him... So in him, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for in Yeshua. It's all the fullness of deity in a bodily form. Let the word of Messiah richly dwell within you. Colossians 3. With, uh, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks through him to God the Father. One, we are Bible-centered. And two, we hopefully have a proper view of Jewish and Gentile people in our congregations. Listen carefully. Jewish and Gentile people are equal. We get saved the same way. And you should always remember these four words. By grace through faith. That's how we're all saved.
in Yeshua the Messiah. By grace through faith in Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection. We're, we're equal. We grow equal. We pray. We read. We worship. We give. We do all the spiritual things that we're supposed to. Jew and Gentile grow equally. We have a proper view, Jewish and Gentile people. We grow the same. Jewish and Gentile people in this congregation, I'm sorry, we're equal. That's sorry. That's what we are. Jewish and Gentile people, there's no need. And you have come to me, Gentiles, and you have said to me, can we be converted? I said, not by me. I don't think it's biblical. God has made Gentiles to be Gentiles. But please love our people. Join in with our team. Reach our people. See, we want to have a balanced view of Jewish. That's why we have Messianic congregations. The world says today, this is very interesting, and you do have it. Many, many biblical famous preachers say it's okay to have a black church. It's okay to have a Haitian church. It's okay to have any cultural church you want except Messianic. Why they pick on us, I don't know. They say we have danger of going back to the law. That's true. We do. That doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have a congregation, a messianic congregation. So we can maintain the remnant. So we can maintain our culture, our identity, and who God made us to be, our background. So we have a meaningful message to our people. So we have a proper biblical view of Gentiles in the body. You see, what we said today is, fill that in, messianic congregations are necessary, I believe. They're designed, I believe, by God to allow Jewish believers to express their God-given identity and reach our community. And we welcome non-Jewish believers to join in our purpose and plan in reaching our people. Let's all bow together for a word of prayer. Abba, we thank you this morning. I thank you. I believe in our time, in my time, in my age, that you've raised up Messianic congregations to reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, a people that's been neglected, a people that's been pushed down and persecuted. Lord, you smile upon us as we reach our people. Lord, we ask that you'd bless this congregation as we need your help, we need your spirit to reach all people. The scripture says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. Lord, we thank you for Shuvah. We ask for you to speak to our hearts. Bless us through this word today, we pray. For we ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen. You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program. In your Bibles, please join us tonight in our scripture study. The main text, the anchor text tonight is going to be the book of 1 John. We're in the middle of a series that's very enriching, the letters of John. We've been kind of going through right from the beginning. The first week we touched on the divine law. 
where God gave himself a law that he would always be faithful and bring covenant to his people and he would never violate this. This is why he stays so closely connected to us no matter where we ebb and flow, where we rise or fall in our spiritual walk with the Lord. Pastor Wayne gave us a sermon called Going for Gold. The challenge to, to not just survive the walk with the Messiah, but the challenge to go for all that God has for us in his kingdom. Last week, we had a special guest, Sean Baker, who is now leading the Herzliya congregation that was announced. And they, they launched this past week. And I, I hear there was a, a wonderful uh, launching. Daniel and Carol were there as long as, as well as others were there in Herzliya. I got some photos. We're going to bless them. In two weeks from now, we're going to be announcing the welcoming of another new congregation to the King of Kings family of ministries. So we're excited to have you join us for that. But Pastor Sean played off of Pastor Wayne's sermon about going for gold, and he labeled his winning gold. And so tonight, 1 John chapter 3, let's start in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for God, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that he should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our life for the brethren. We'll stop there for a moment, but that's really where you need to keep your finger tonight, because we're going to use that as our anchor text to come back to several times. It's a very simple process in this opening statement. Those who sin are not of God. Those who do righteousness, those who obey the voice and the word of God are considered to be of God. But another prerequisite is added. It's not just to do righteousness and obey in a generic sense, but to love one another, to love your brothers as yourself. Those people who walk that out, that kind of love that has an action associated with it, those are of God. Now the text goes on to explain why Yeshua came. Why did Yeshua come as God in the flesh? Why did he appear to us? Well, our text tonight gave us one reason, but there are other reasons given in the Bible of why Yeshua came. And we want to build a list tonight so you can understand and maybe even go home and study this a little further. The reasons why Yeshua came, why God came in the flesh. What were the main reasons and motivations? Well, one of these we can pick up in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There's one reason. To seek and save the lost. And we should identify that seeking the lost is an, an action. It's an activity. There's an aggressive side that says to go out and seek the lost. It's not as if Yeshua just came and stood still and expected that everyone would come to him. Now, certainly there is that aspect as well. But it says here in Luke 19 that Yeshua came to seek. 
to seek them out, to run after them, to find them, and to save the lost. Now, he, he will not violate the free will of man. He will not make us follow him if we don't want to. That has to be a voluntary love choice on our behalf. Love is a decision. We're going to come back to that. But Yeshua seeks and saves the lost. What else do we find in the scriptures of why Yeshua came as God in the flesh? 1 John chapter 1, we're going to review from a couple of weeks ago. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Yeshua, his son, purifies us from all sin. So he came to seek and save the lost, and he came to purify us from all sin as well. We continue John 3, 16, very famous Verse, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He came to seek and save the lost, he came to purify us from all sin, and he came to grant us, give to us, offer to us eternal life. Bringing us to tonight's passage, an additional reason why Yeshua appeared as God in the flesh. 1 John 3, verse 8, we read it already, I'll, re- I'll review it here. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So not just to seek and save the lost, not to just purify us from all sin, not to just grant us eternal life, but to destroy the works of the devil. That was one of the express points of Yeshua coming as God in the flesh to us. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us needing to understand then what the works of the devil are so that we can understand what Yeshua came to destroy. Follow me to John chapter 10. Now, this is the gospel of John, not 1 John. Keep your finger in 1 John. But John 10, verse 10, reminds us of this. The thief, or in this case, we're referring to the devil, Satan himself. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and to have it to the fullest. This is one of the works of the devil, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Yeshua says, I came to destroy the works of the devil. So I came to destroy stealing and killing and anything that destroys my creation. You see, sometimes I think we, we tend to make God a little too small. When I was in preparation for this particular sermon, I was waiting on the Lord and I said, Lord, what is the heart behind what you want to say? And, and what I sensed from him, what I was feeling from him is this. Some in the congregation have forgotten how big I am. So go tell them tonight how big I am. Our main text goes on to link the evil works of the devil with the fruit of our own life. Saying if we, if we walk in evil ways and we live unrighteously and, uh, and disobediently to the works of God, to the word of God. If we do these things, then we are linked to the works of the devil. Now that's a heavy load. You see, that's a heavy word. Because now we have to guard against something. How do we balance this idea between live righteously and the fruit of our sin is linked to the works of the devil? That's a very dangerous line we need to tiptoe back and forth on. Holy Spirit, help us tonight as we do that. We continue in our main text tonight, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. What does it say? Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil. And his brother's actions were righteous. So again, we see this repeated a few verses later in verse 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Our actions are certainly a measuring point of where we are in righteousness. 
But they're not the only measuring point of where we are in our righteous walk with the Lord. Actions are important. But God in, in the Torah, he, he established the idea that it was, it was deeper than just your actions, the way you live. He was very concerned with the motives of the heart. Why do you do the things that you do? We, we often ask the children that. Today, there was a situation. I was in the other room. I was in the office studying, and I heard a shriek or a shriel come from one of the back rooms. And in parental instinct, without even thinking about it, as soon as you hear the shriek, what happened? Who did what? Leave them alone. Like, Dad, you're not even in here. You don't see what's happening. Well, I'm sure someone needs to leave someone else alone. That's all I know. I'm guessing that from experience. What happened? Well, he pinched me. He pinched you. Well, that's not good. He shouldn't be pinching, right? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not pinch. It's in there. We've taught it to the kids. So I, I, bring, I bring my son in and I say, did you pinch your sister? Yes, I did. Well, thank you for being honest and, 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 and just putting it out there on the table. That's good. But what I'm more concerned about is why did you pinch her? You know, and then, then there's this kind of laundry list of reasons. Seemed like he's been building up this list for a couple of weeks. And something happened that just it made it spill over and, and, and just the flesh had to rise up and it had to release the anger. And it pinched. But see, as a father, I'm concerned more about why. I want to know the heart motive. I want to know what's going on behind the scenes. Why did you do this? Because if I can solve the why issue, the pinching is just a fruit of it. And I think our Heavenly Father tonight is saying the same thing to us. As a matter of fact, this this teaching comes from Yeshua's own lips. Matthew chapter 5. I want to read a few verses. Verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of the hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will, you will by no means get out until you have paid the last penny. You see, Yeshua is saying to us, yes, don't murder, but it's more important what's going on in your heart. The hatred is, the, is, is, is that which is propelling the fruit of the violence. It's hatred in the heart. This is why when we deal with racism, anti-Semitism, terrorism, to simply tell someone to stop the action is never going to solve the problem. Because we haven't resolved the heart motive. Why does someone hate? Why does someone produce violence and murder and terrorism? And this is what our governments around the world, as as smart as they give themselves credit for, no one seems to understand, or very few people seem to understand, that we're not going to solve the violence of the world, the murders and the bombs and the stabbings and the shootings and the beheadings by just saying stop. It's not until we get to the heart issue Because out of the heart, the hands will do, the mouth will speak, the body will perform that which is already in the heart. And until we stop teaching it in our schools, 
Until we go back to a form of education where Yeshua was the center of the education. The commandments of God was the center of the education. Will we ever solve the heart motive? But when we strip those things out of the education system, and in place of that we put everyone's law is unto themselves. Do whatever feels right to you. Never look to your neighbor and judge their actions. Let them live however they want to live. Well, this is the fruit of it. They're going to live however their heart wants to live. And the wickedness in the heart is producing action tonight. And Yeshua is saying, go to the heart. The heart is where I'm most concerned. Having hatred in our heart is equal to the sin of murder. And there's really no loose end left untied here. You know, in Matthew 18, it says, if, if you have an offense against a brother or a sister, then you go to them and you try to reconcile. But in, here in Matthew 5, it doesn't say if you have an offense against them. It says, if you think they have an offense against you. And really what should be happening in the body of Messiah is a meeting in the middle along the way. Because one person's coming because they were offended. The other person's coming because they might have offended the other person. And we're supposed to be meeting in the middle saying, brother, I'm sorry, sister, I'm sorry, please forgive me. There's no loophole. There's no way that we can continue to worship as new covenant believers if we have unresolved relationship dynamics in play. The heart. But John wants us to understand The real heart motives come out in our action. My oldest daughter asked me in this week's devotion time as a family, we were dealing with these passages and she said, Dad, how would you define love? I said, well, that's a big one, honey. There's a lot of different definitions of love. How would would I define love? So I thought about it for a minute and I'm going to give you my definition. It's by no means a perfect definition, nor is it the only definition of love. So do not send me an email about that. It was my definition of love In the moment, I was teaching my daughter. But what came to my mind was this. I said, sweetheart, love is a decision which contains an emotional component that demands an action. First, love is a decision, right? Now, when you're first getting into a romantic environment with somebody of the opposite gender, you have to say that these days, right? (laughs) And that's sad. I have to say that. But you're first getting involved in a romantic encounter. The feelings are just floating. They're flying. They're, they're so strong and they're so heavy. And, and you feel like that thing that you feel is love. But as you grow up, you get married. You have trials. Your life takes on some seasoning to it. You realize, even amongst friends, let's even take out the romantic component and just say deep friendships. We start to realize that net every day do I feel these butterfly, warm, propelling feelings, the same, you know. Even parents with young children have to go through this, this mental growth, this maturity in the faith to say, I really love my children, but how do I feel about my children at 3 a.m., right? It's very different. When they're fresh out of the bathtub and they smell good and you put that little pink lotion on them, And you do that little towel hoodie. It's like a half hoodie, but it's also a towel. You with me on that? Put those little tiny diapers on. You swaddle them up. You give them a nice uh, bottle if they're of that age or you're feeding them or maybe mom's nursing them, however that's going. See, those are the moments you get the feelings. But at three in the morning, I don't have a lot of feelings. I have one feeling. And that feeling is I want to get back in bed. That's my feeling. But love is a decision, friends. You decide I'm going to love this person. I'm going to love my children when they need a change of a diaper, when they're screaming at three in the morning, when one pinches the other one, 
When one crashes into the other one with their bike for no reason, I'm going to love my children. Just as the same as I love them when they cuddle up in my lap and they hug me and they kiss me, I've decided to love my children. I've decided to love my wife. I've decided to love my friends in this community. But love should carry an emotional component as well. It can't be devoid of emotion, but it's not to be led by emotion. Love is a decision. Yeshua decided to come to purify us from sin, to seek and save the lost, to offer eternal life, and to destroy the works of the devil. I don't know that there was a lot of this crazy sense of emotion that was driving him. He decided. It carried an emotional component. How do we know? Because it says Yeshua was moved by compassion. But then in the end, he wasn't just moved by compassion in his emotions. He was moved by compassion to do something about it. And that's what real love is. And that's where the definition, my quick version, definition answer to my daughter came from. That love is a decision which carries an emotional component that leads to an action. If it doesn't lead to an action, it's not love. That's how Jewish history would define love. And obedience. That it it ends up with an action. Not a Greek way of thinking that if you think it up here, somehow you believe it. No, belief is, faith is that which you believe and it propels to action. And so love carries the same component tonight. Now we should test this definition to make sure we're not off track. It's certainly not the only definition. But let's see if this definition fits within the framework of biblical or godly love. In our main text tonight, we're still in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. That Yeshua laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our life for our brothers and our sisters. So in this verse, we confirm that love is a decision. That in the end, it ultimately resulted in an action. That Yeshua laid down his life for us. He didn't just come and say he loved us. I love you guys. I love you guys. I love every one of you. But without the action, there's no redemption. There's no atonement. There's no forgiveness. There's no purification. There's no eternal life without the action. The book of James picks up on this this principle very strongly. I will show you my faith by my deeds. And that should be the answer we give to anyone as well in love. I will show you my love by my deeds. Not only by my words, not only by my emotions. Now, Pastor Kurt read right before we took the, the offering tonight. He read this passage, same chapter, 1 John 3, 17 and 18. It confirms that love moves in an action. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in this person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in the truth. But see, these actions that we're talking about are led by the heart first. That's what the first part of the chapter told us. That the heart motive is what Yeshua is primarily concerned with. But that heart motive must propel to action. Now, you might say, I get a little fearful. I get a little scared when I hear people speak on the topic of obedience and righteousness. Because I understand that I fall short. And so I don't feel righteous. So how can I live up to this standard, Chad? How can I live up to this demand of something like Matthew 5, 48 that says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can we live up to that demand? Well, the Torah itself predicted that we would fail. Therefore, God has prepared a pattern of atonement through the sacrifices. And it would be tough enough if we were just trying to pursue righteousness on our own with no adversary, right? If the only adversary was our flesh, that would be hard enough. But we have an adversary. 
And this adversary is tempting and lying and twisting and stealing and killing and trying to destroy. And that's not all. The new deluxe version of the enemy is out on the market. And he becomes the accuser of the brethren. Added to all of that other horrible things that he, that he does. He's also the accuser of the brethren. But do you see that the, that's a tight spot that we find ourselves caught in? This spot of be perfect as I am perfect. But the Torah says I'm going to fail. And every time I fail, I've got the accuser of the brethren right in my ear telling me that I failed. And it, it does something to the heart. Anybody ever have a heartache, right? A heartache where your, your heart knows something's wrong. You may not be able to put your finger on it, but it knows something's wrong. And sometimes the enemy being right there, either it's him or his lying forces or his spirits or whatever it is that's lying to us, certainly doesn't make things easier in this walk of righteousness. We can certainly find ourselves being accused, feeling condemned as failures, living in a dark cloud of guilt. What if our past is holding us in bondage the way we live? The way we we lived before is holding us in bondage to how we should be living now. But Pastor Chad, you don't understand. You you didn't see how I used to live. What if the way we lived before Yeshua is so shameful, it's hard to talk about that? There might be some in the room tonight who feel like they've led a life that's so shameful before Yeshua that it's, it's impossible to get out. It's impossible to share with anyone. And you live life bound up in that cloud of guilt. Tonight, don't forget how big God is. Well, that's one thing, Pastor. If, if, if I lived a life of sin and unrighteousness and shamefulness before, at least I came to Yeshua, and, and now everything's perfect. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, see, there were no amen, amens on that. What that means is we know as believers, the majority of us in the room tonight are believers in Yeshua, and when I said after Yeshua, it's all perfect, right? And you realize that uh, I don't think that's true, and it's not, it's not true. Everything in our life is not perfect after we come to the Lord Yeshua. Because we still deal with the flesh. We still deal with the world. We still deal with the devil and his accusations and the guilt that he tries to throw at us. That's one thing that I used to live like that, but now I'm in Yeshua. But what about the person who's in Yeshua and is struggling tonight? Where does that leave us? This idea that it would have been easy to throw it away before, but now I'm in Yeshua, but I'm still struggling with sin. Well, that doesn't sound like a very hopeful position to be in. I thought Yeshua was supposed to take all this stuff away. This doesn't sound like a very hopeful message, Pastor Chad. I don't like where you're going with this. I don't like you took a turn there somewhere. I was with you, but I'm not with you anymore. Well, Paul joins us in this discussion. Paul was not immune to the, to the difficulties of living the, the believing lifestyle. Romans 7 verse 15 says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do it. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if English is not your first language, I am sorry for that verse. That verse was hard to understand. (laughs) That's a hard one. You know, I went to a believing school when I was a child, and and we used to have to uh, memorize scripture verses. This is very good for all of us to memorize scripture verses, but I can remember having to stand up in front of the the teacher in the class as an assignment and, and then quote the scripture that was the homework. And this was a tough one. 
I remember we got a couple of giggles out of the, the classmates when they were trying to quote something like that. I remember one kid on his way up, he was about, it was about to be his turn, and he said to me, man, I don't think I know this one well enough. I said, man, this one's easy. Just start talking about what you do and you don't do and you can't do because you want to do. Just say it. You probably confused the teacher. But Paul is not immune to the battle. I want to do it, but I, it's so hard and I can't. And I'm in Yeshua and it's still hard for me. Now, while this battle rages within us to pursue God and to live righteously, to love and serve God and man above ourselves, we still fight the sinful tendencies of the flesh. I wrote this down this week, and this may minister to some of you. It may not. If it doesn't, just let your neighbor have it. We may not wrestle against flesh and blood, but it can feel like we wrestle against our flesh and blood. Anybody with me? Amen. Lord, bless those four people who, who needed that word. Thank you, Lord. The other ones who are just pure, who just so grateful to be in their presence tonight, Lord. We may not wrestle against flesh and blood, but man, does it feel like we wrestle against our flesh and blood. The devil certainly is ready to pounce with any accusation. Our hearts can condemn us, and it can change the perspective of God's love toward us. The world around us is always poised to call us out and to call us hypocrites at any moment. Where is it that we turn? We are called to push past the noise and the pressures and the judgments of others and to rest in the truth of God. And that's really where this passage takes us. After John builds this case about love and service and righteousness and holiness and, and the devil's works and sin being a fruit of the, the evil that's in your heart and, and you're called to be perfect but you can't because you battle the flesh, after that whole dialogue, where does he end up teaching us tonight? What is the main lesson he wants us to learn? First John 3, 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. That if our heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. <laughs> Friends, that's the message tonight. That's the good message tonight. That's the good news tonight. That when your heart condemns you, remember God is greater than your heart. Okay, Pastor Chad, we're back with you now. We like that part. We are worried about there for a few minutes, but now we're with you. That God is greater than our hearts. What a concept that God is greater than our hearts. Our heart plays tricks on us. It's moved by things and emotions and circumstances. It's moved by what the eyes can see and the ears can hear. It's moved by others' opinions, especially our own. The heart is deceitfully wicked, and yet God is greater than the heart. Sin starts in the heart first, comes out in the actions, but God is greater than your heart. God is greater than our failures. He's greater than our disappointments. He's greater than our guilt, friends. He's greater than all of our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 reminds us of this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled, catch it, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with the pure water. Did you catch it? Having your guilty conscience cleansed. There is no other false God on this earth that can cleanse a guilty conscience. There's not even a sacrifice offering in the Torah scriptures that can cleanse a guilty conscience. Do you realize that? You could offer sacrifices and legally you knew that you were forgiven. But without the Holy Spirit coming in our life, you were never cleansed of the guilty conscience. You were cleansed of the sin, but not of the, the consequences in your guilty conscience. So yes, you're walking in a righteous life moving forward, but remembering and being weighed down by the past sins of your life. But in the new covenant age, under the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Yeshua, 
You're not only forgiven of your sin, but your, your conscience is cleaned. So that you don't have to give in to condemnation. So that we don't have to give in to the lies of the evil one and the accuser of the brethren and the judgments of the world. We walk with a, a guilt-free conscience. That's how great God is. Some of us made him small. Tonight we want to make him big. Don't forget how big he is. He's bigger than your guilt and weakness. He's greater than your heart. Now Hebrews, if you were to do a study in that chapter of Hebrews, it will go on to remind you several things. That Yeshua is greater than the Sabbath day. All created things. The temple itself. Moses. Elijah. He's greater than death. He's greater than hell. He's greater than the devil. He's greater than you, me, every principality, every power, every false god, every kingdom. His power is greater than our sin, our guilt, and the condemnation of the devil. Yeshua is greater. And this is why you want him to be the ruler of your heart. Because you can trust him with your heart. He can clean it. He can wash away guilt. He can take away evil motives. He can, he can reorder the DNA of the heart so it produces good fruit naturally. You see, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, what we're really talking about is evidence of the Spirit. If we're having to work too hard at the fruit, that shows us a little bit about what's going on in the heart. Now it's good that we're working on it. But when we reach a place of maturity in the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit comes out naturally. And that's where we want to live. Yeshua is greater than our heart. We can trust Him tonight to be the ruler of our heart. So we'll close with this thought, this challenge. Worship team, you can come on out. How about this challenge? What's going on in our heart tonight? What's going on in our heart? How, how big do we, have we made God? Or how small have we made him? Have we made decisions and followed through on those decisions and kept our word and, and let our emotion for God move us into action? Our emotion for each other move us into action? What is the condition of our heart? The Holy Spirit is really good and really tender at revealing these things. In one sense, we can certainly think about it ourselves. We, we know what's going on. But I tell you what, the Holy Spirit is even able to reveal things that we don't know about our own heart. Amen? And sometimes those things are deeply rooted and they need to come out. Whether it's a pain, it's a disappointment, it's a, it's a judgment of another, it's a jealousy of someone or something, it's a covetousness, it's a, it's a, a lack of purity in your mind or spirit or body. It's, it's a lying spirit. Whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. It's coming out of sinfulness or pain or hurt or disappointment in the heart. And God is greater than your heart. He's greater than the pain in your heart. So what I want to challenge us to do tonight as we close is this. We're going to have two opportunities for you to receive some prayer ministry. Right here at the altar, we're going to open it up as the worship team plays. And if you want prayer for any and every reason, you want a prayer partner, a word of encouragement, someone to lay hands on you and agree with you, then come to the altar. Fifteen minutes after we close the service officially, the healing pools will be open in the prayer tower on the 14th floor. So you can take us up on our prayer partnership up front, or you can wait and and go to the prayer tower if you need a longer time. The prayer tower often, it's an available space if you need a little bit more time to unpack what's going on, to explain the story, to to share the struggle with, with a trusted friend. So I'm going to ask the worship team to keep us in this sweet sense of worship that we had tonight. Thank you for letting me share that word that was on my heart. And and I hope that when I challenged you tonight, I didn't offend you. That wasn't my intent. My intent was to break open any ceiling that we put on God. How big is our God? 
Can we trust him to be the ruler of our heart tonight? He is certainly greater than everything else. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio.